We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. What's up? I'm Alan Williams. I'm here, of course, with James DiVirgilio. We're going to talk all about that win over the Missouri Tigers, get you ready for LSU. Fun week here on the pod. LSU week is always wild. James, how are you feeling over there, buddy? I feel great. I love LSU week for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, Florida has a lot of rivals, a lot of opponents that evoke a lot of emotions. And obviously, I feel like in the in the past, maybe five, six, seven years, Alan, LSU has become the one that the most drama has occurred in for a variety of reasons. Some high-stake moments, some low-stakes moments where games are just crazy. Uh, goal line stands, shoe throwing, hurricanes, right? Legendary quarterbacks, hurricanes moving games around, athletic directors talking trash. I mean, this game has just featured basically everything. And here we are again with a new addition, a new chapter, two new coaches. And this game is set up on the face of it to be as zany as ever. So For sure. looking forward to talking about LSU. But and of first, course, a lot to talk about was the Missouri game about too. About Missouri. I mean, absolutely. There was a lot of stuff that went down there. Okay, well, tell us about some new patrons here. I thought maybe you were going to just lead out with our huge GNFP weekend. <laughs> well, that, let's talk about yeah, that first. Tell, tell the people about our GNFP weekend here. Well, guys, it's this Friday night. It's that first mag, downtown Gainesville. There's links on social media. You can click in RSVP there. It's free, of course. Come hang out with me, James, the rest of GNFP Nation here. I think it's going to be a really fun time. Yeah, it should be great. 6 to 8 p.m. again, totally free. Check out our social media. We'll be putting this on social media probably every day up until the event. Uh, we've already let First Magnitude know that we expect quite a few people, so they should have a huge area carved out for us. Should be a great time. So if you're going to be in town this Friday night, stop by, hang out with Alan and I and the GNFP Nation. Um, all right. Well, if you like the content on this show, as always, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel where I bring you film breakdowns each and every week. Fantastic that, ones, by yeah, the way. That tend to cause my life a lot of complexity and stress, <laughs> but it's always worth it whenever it's done. It's worth putting them out there. And then if you want to support our efforts, you can become a patron on Patreon by dropping us 
a dono. Donos of all levels, of course, are available to you. Shout out to B-Red, who took a vacation this week and did not edit our documents, so he made our lives more difficult. Thanks for that, B-Red. And Claudia the Commissioner, who's just been bawling as our video editor out there in Colorado, uh, cutting and splicing all of our videos we link up online for the film breakdown. So thanks to their help, and then thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to our new donors. Not donors, <laughs> donors, Alan. Uh, small right. donos coming in. We have Kathy Chimilarski. Another Chimilarski. Who we learned that, that we pronounced the name correctly. So good deduction by you there, Alan. Kathy now coming in as well on the coattails, I presume, of her husband. Uh, Bryant Roberts as well, new, coming in at a small dono. And then Rebel Gator coming in of the Rebel Alliance, perhaps, who knows, uh, with a small dono as well, all new. Appreciate that. Welcome to the family. Medium donos, John Stewart, which is the, of course, infamous L. Stew's dad. Whoa. Yeah, you and I both know L. Stew going way he, back. Should we call him J. Stew? J. Stew. I like J. Stew. J. Stew, L. Stew. He, I think he's going to be at the meetup this weekend, from what he told me. So coming in from down south. A level up from Bob Coleman to medium. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for your continued support. A large dono and level up from Carl King. Let's go, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. And then level ups from Carrie, David, Jamie Galliano, and the Moore family. Man, a lot of leveling up going on. I and love the to see XXL, it. yeah, category. It's amazing, right? Way to level up. And then a hundo bomb coming in hot. Got to hit the like hundo bomb button boop, over boop, here. <laughs> from a new donor. Donor. I don't know why I've not been using that until this week. It's- Man. It's both great and terrible. For I'll those say. of you who didn't like that I say dono each and every week, I'm sure you really love. You're cringing right now. Donoer, right? I mean, we just make this as cringy as possible during the support part. But you guys have adopted it, and I appreciate that because it's all for fun. Uh, Ryan Ashley, though. Way to go, Ryan. Thanks for that hundo bomb coming in there hot, dropping dropping a bomb on us. We appreciate that. And then still sitting on the throne is James Ridge, James Ridge who is 1-0. And Congrats. looks to be 2-0 and here against LSU. Alan, this has become, I think, a lot of people's favorite segment of the show. No way. You're reading off the Dono Legends. <laughs> I, I've heard a lot of people say, if you guys do t-shirts one day, I think you have to have a Dono Legendary. Hashtag Dono Legends. Yeah, you have to have a category because of your excellent reading. All right. <laughs> I'm sure that's why. All right. Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood. James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarato. Wow, what an illustrious list that is, James. Oh, it's fantastic. I love hearing it every single week. <laughs> All right. The Gators win 24-17. It got a little sketchy at times there in the swamp, but the Gators do pull out a victory. I have to say, we were spot on with these numbers here. You predicted 27-24. I was 27-20. Man, it doesn't get much closer than that when you're making predictions. Your keys to the game, you talked about the offense having 200 yards rushing. They had 231. Got the win there. And we both said... Allowing 150 yards rushing while the Gators allowed exactly 150 yards rushing, which is kind of wild. I talked about the offense having six plays of 20 plus yards. They had five and we're close on a couple more. And when you talk about keys to the game, it's usually not so literal. If they are off a little bit on either of those categories, they might lose. So good job by us, I guess, on that one. Yeah, I think that's the goal when we do the keys to the game category is to try to pick the things that if we 
get that right, we win with a high percentage of success. And I think that wound up being very true in this game. Had Missouri been able to run the ball more effectively, they right. would have scored more than they did. And had Florida not been able to run the ball as effectively, we may not have scored at all. We struggled to score anyway. So that rushing stat was really important uh, against a team that was a better rushing defense than they were a passing defense. But I think it was wise for us to identify that Florida is going to have to win this game by by running the football. That is just what we're better at. That wound up being true in this game. And obviously we hung on with a very close victory. Okay. We both said that we would be happy with a win. After looking at that Missouri tape, watching them play Georgia, kind of looking at the styles make fights thing, right? What are they good at? What are we good at? Felt like it was going to be close. We both predicted a very close victory. That's what happened. So we said we'd be happy with a win. Whatever, right? If you get a win in this game, that's good. All right, after watching the game, does that sentiment still hold true for you today? Entirely true. And I think for a lot of you that have listened to the podcast for a long time, you might be surprised by my answer there because oftentimes I come in and I'm saying it's really frustrating. A win's not a win. But the film is what always tells the story. And live and in person in that game, and then especially on film, Florida had a lot of ways where they could have scored way more points or could have been that much better on defense. So if you watch it back, Missouri did not have that many opportunities that they missed per se to punish Florida. Florida missed a bunch on offense where one player basically couldn't get it done on defense. We had multiple chances where if someone just does their basic job, we're fine there. So if you're looking at it that way, it's a good win against opponent that from the start of the season was going to be one that we should have been able to beat more easily, but was playing close with just about everyone after the Kansas State game. They played close with Florida. Florida, in some ways, Allen was lucky to have won this game the way they did, given how Missouri was driving a couple of times. You know, Jaden Hill obviously becoming a hero of this game. Then Florida's offense in the second half coming alive. But this is a good win for Florida. This is where we are right now as a football team. We are an average football team in the SEC. We can be really good at times. We can be really bad. We have a lot of variance. So it's important just to get the wins when you can and hope on film that you see improvement and that you see openings for improvement available to you. So I think all those things are true. I walked into the stadium hoping just to get a win. I thought it was going to be close. We said it was going to be close. It was close. It got a very similar game to what you and I expected, and we won. And that, I think, is is a victory for this program where we are right now. Is that frustrating that Florida is playing with Missouri like this? Yes. But to your point, Alan, Missouri's been a house of horrors for a lot of Florida teams for a long time. But outside of that, this is where Florida is right now. You have to accept that. If you're a Gators fan, you cannot just flip a switch and all of a sudden we're Alabama or we're Florida under Urban Meyer. It doesn't work that way. This is a good win. 100% agree. I think this Missouri team is better than their like reputation and their like you know talent level. They're gonna, I think, compete with most teams, right? They're gonna have some weeks. Their variance is probably much lower than Florida. If they're bad, they'll they'll get blown out, but. They can certainly play with you, and I think they've proven that the last couple weeks that they can play with just about anybody. It doesn't mean they will every week, so you do have to play well to beat them. And, I mean, they are will probably almost always be a bottom half of the league team. Um, and But this isn't a bad Missouri team by any means, right? They have some talent. They know what they're doing. Um, yeah, so I think as I watch the game, it wasn't unfolding exactly as I expected, but... 
the kind of game feel of it, I recognized early on, we're going to, this is going to be tight all the way through. I feel like, and I don't, I, I always kind of felt Florida was going to most likely pull it off. I will say I was pretty nervous as they were driving down, but right before that second Jaden Hill interception that man, this might just go really wrong for us. How nervous were you during the game? I wasn't nervous, but I was a step away from being nervous at multiple occasions. And then you highlighted one of them. Of course, at the end of the game, uh, I looked over at uh, a couple of friends I was sitting with and said, the only question now is whether Missouri goes for two if they score, which which I think they would have. And you were always on the edge of nervousness. Uh, But the defense in the second half was quietly dominating 75, 80% of the snaps and then disappearing for the important ones. Right. So it was out there for Missouri to have scored on Florida. It could have happened, right? Nothing was out of the realm of possibility. But it felt like the way we played in the second half, we moved the ball on offense very consistently. We were playing better defense, although Missouri was scoring in the second half. We actually were playing better defense in a lot of respects outside of third down, which we'll talk about. So thankfully, I never got to like nervous mode. mode. Yeah. I was right on the cusp multiple times. And then, you know, Florida obviously gets the fourth down stop and then we knew we had won the game. But it was sort of a classic nooner, right? Fans not really into it. Not a lot of noise in the stadium. People way late to show up. Uh, sort of just going through the motions of a, a surprisingly hot day after right. it had been cool in Gainesville for a while. So I think all those things kind of just led into people were there. People were about to get really panicky and it never really reached that level in the stadium either. So it was not a comfortable win, but it wasn't, oh man, we escaped or survived either. It was, you know, somewhere in between those two. So coming into the year, like, as I said, felt like Missouri was not going to be a very good team. They didn't have some great results early on, but I think from that Georgia tape, it kind of opened people's eyes, ours especially, that hey, they're a little, they can play a little bit better than we've probably been giving them credit for. Um, and at least in my opinion, they kind of lived up to that UGA tape. Um, again, this is, that was at home, this was on the road, but they kind of look like the same team a little bit from that game, at least in terms of their level of effectiveness against Florida. Yeah, I think what was really impressive uh, offensively for Florida was Georgia was unable to run their zone scheme at all against Missouri, and Florida ran it very successfully. Florida also mixed in gap or power runs, which Florida does anyway. Florida mixes that in, but Georgia really couldn't run zone at all against Missouri, and and Florida, again, was successful there. I think Billy's going to hang his hat on that. I think the offensive line coaches were thrilled after the game. I think all week this week they're probably really telling the O-line, Let's take another step forward. That was a big step forward. That was a Missouri team who was really good against zone just a week before, and then you really outclassed them, gouging them, gashing them for multiple big plays, different schemes. That was really impressive. But outside of of Florida's dominance in the run game that was surprising on the very positive side because of what Georgia had done, to your point, the rest of what we saw from Missouri was the team that took Georgia right to the end. And they're cagey. They can make plays. Uh, they're well-coached on offense and defense. They're just limited. But again, Jaden Hill, I think in this game, and I'm going to ask you this question a little bit later, but Jaden Hill is the hero of this game for me. And the outcome, I think, might have been different without him. I would agree. I mean, we needed those big plays right when they happened. And... It would have gotten super close. Florida might have had to like steal one rather than kind of putting one away there. All right, we're, let's let's keep talking about the offense here. 
47 plays. Which is crazy. This is yeah. now the third game I think Florida's had fewer than like 55 plays in a game. Which is so low, right? So Again, low. some of that is attributed to, like if you have a pick six, that's going to cut down your number of plays. It eliminates possession. If you have a big punt return, which then you go like three and out to a missed field goal, that, that's going to happen. Right, Did they make that field goal? Uh, we made the field goal. We made the field goal. The yes, field goal. okay. The first one. We missed two yes. others. Yeah, one for three in the day. All right, 297 yards total, which is not a lot. 66 yards passing. That 66. is 66. I honestly I can't remember a lower number. 66. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> okay. 230 yards rushing. You mentioned that. That's 7.2 yards per rush. Which is remarkable versus yeah. that Missouri team, especially when you have 66 yards passing. Exactly. 4.4 yards per pass play. Anemic. One pick, which wasn't terrible in the time of the game. One fumble, which was bad. That bad. was the worst play of the game on offense. Yeah. Only 3 of 11 on third down. Continuing Florida's yep. really troubling third down conversion trend. One for one on fourth down. And they're really positive yep. fourth down trend. AR, 8 of 14 for the 66 yards. One TD, which was probably his best play of the game. Yeah, great. Great throw. Great throw. Good job by Ricky adjusting. I mean, it was a really tight window. You saw all the best stuff of AR athletically on that play. He did have one pick, one fumble. Uh, the backs ran really well. Montreal and Etienne looked great. Naquan struggles. All, I mean, he had uh, a few decent runs there, but he's just not the same caliber player. We continue to say that. And we saw the carries start to skew in favor of both right. Etienne and Montreal. I think Montreal was announced good. as the starter today, uh, like in the stadium, I heard. You weren't there in time probably to hear that. Yes, I did. I missed that. I was uh, getting off my my scoot piece to hop in with my VIP parking. There you go. Uh, one sack three, three in the red zone, which is a positive. Okay. Was, was big because yeah. Missouri was three and four in the red zone and that may have changed the game. All right. This felt like a tale of two halves a little bit. Florida ineffective running the ball in the first half, very effective running the ball in the second half. Does that basically tell the story of this game? Just in that one comment. Sort of, except in the first half, Florida should have been very effective. They were one player away from multiple big plays on film where they had Missouri in a, in a call that was not a good call, and we just did not execute a normal block, or Missouri made a hero play. Uh, but if a few of those hit, then it would have been great from the start. So I had to imagine that Napier went into halftime and thought, we have a lot of what we want here. And that's another big reason why, again, we extol this every single week. Watching the film is so crucial when you're watching on television, you can see almost nothing. When you're watching in the stadium, you don't you, you can see something, but if you don't happen to catch the right portion of the field or where the ball goes, you really can't see what the linemen are doing very well, depending on where you're sitting. You don't really know if we got stopped for a one-yard gain. Was that a good play or a bad play? Was there a chance for a bigger play? It happens very fast. But on film, it was clear that Florida had to feel good in real time, that they had big opportunities available to them. So I think they came out in the second half and thought, we just have to execute better which is what they did. So it right. was a tale of two halves, but it was also not like Florida made adjustments. There were not any significant adjustments made in the second half. It was just better execution and Florida then hit on some of those big plays they missed in the early in the early going. Yes, that's what it seemed like. I, you know, just in real time it felt like as Florida was being more effective in the second half, it wasn't like okay, we've a, we've totally like flipped things over and are trying a whole different style. It just felt like People got on the right page and were hitting some big plays, which if Florida is going to be effective, I think against the best teams, they got to hit these big chunk run plays. And that was 
there against Missouri. I mean, could have been a few more as well. Uh, but yes, when that's clicking, it's a beautiful thing to see when you have Montreal and Etienne running, cutting back, being super slippery and elusive and running with a lot of power. That That's a beautiful thing to see. Um, so I want to get a little best part of the offense part that most struggled before. I, mean, I think we're kind of hitting on the best part, but um, other than the backs and the offensive line, anything else that maybe looked impressive or just even more commentary on them? I think that the offense in general is, is starting to cement itself this season. Uh, the O-line continues to impress every week, For right? Sure. Here and there, there's going to be one guy that misses a block, but in general, really, really solid. I think it's fair to say that Florida might be the best split zone running team in the entire country right now. We are absolutely lethal running split zone we are generating humongous chunk yards out of that. And if you haven't watched the film review, split zone, zone blocking is where your linemen are all going to go in the same direction. And then split zone is where you're taking H-back or anyone else, but Florida tends to use their H-back or their tight end who's set off the line of scrimmage to go across the formation against the green, setting basically a weak side block. And that gives your running back a chance to cut to the weak side or the non-play side. And Florida has been stellar with that all year. They We, we hit Missouri at least four times on that play. And it's always a little different with how Billy creates that but we block that so well um so that that's become like i think maybe what this team is generating as an identity but i think outside of that the the passing game as we've as we've covered now it still can it still looks to me to be very rudimentary right we've said this before the the offensive play calling when it comes to design on the run game is is revolutionary in a lot of ways it's really forward thinking it mixes the best of pro the best of college. It throws everything at you. It's so hard to stop. And the passing game is like we're playing high school football in the 1980s. It's really weird that that's what we're doing. Uh, and it's hurting Florida, quite frankly. It's hurting Florida. And in this game, and I'll give you one simple example, there's chances where if we had better receivers, if we had some dudes, let's say, then we're going to score a lot more of these vertical balls we throw on the field. But the ball we throw to Frazier's he runs a post route. It's one-on-one. The safety stays with, with Whittemore. It's an easy play design. It's perfectly fine play design to run a post there. Uh, he starts with outside leverage versus our inside post. It's like everything you'd want pre-snap. Right. AR throws a perfect pass. Frazier's gets held. They don't call holding. But regardless, Frazier on his post route makes no move to take an outside leverage defender and move him further outside. No head nod, no left foot stick, nothing. He doesn't even really cut to his post. It's the most lazy speed post you you could possibly imagine being run. And that's what allows the defender to hold him in the first place. And then through the hold, doesn't fight through well, doesn't dive for the ball, doesn't shield, doesn't do anything. It's the weakest post route you can possibly imagine being run. And we don't score. But if you're going to be a team that is going to throw the ball 14 times a game, and you're going to be a team that's top or you know one or two in the SEC now in yards per play, so we are in a very explosive offense, we can't keep missing these against opponents like Kentucky and Missouri and be okay with that. And that's what continues to show up. Outside of Tennessee, we have whiffed on almost every single important major pass play we are making. And you cannot keep doing that and expect to win. And again, I understand if Billy Napier has Tyreek Hill or Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase or any of those guys, and we get these one-on-one matchups, we're going to win them. We don't have those guys. And we're not punishing teams, despite the fact that they are selling out to stop us running the football 
as much as they can. And they still couldn't stop us, which means we should be punishing teams in the passing game. So that's what shows up is we do have receivers open at times, Alan. Um, we missed several open chances in this game. It wasn't always because of AR. Could have been that we missed a block on the on the offensive line and all of a sudden, you know, we, we take a fumble or a sack. So there's those moments. But just in general, I don't see the play design, and I've said this before, that we saw in the run game. It's two different games entirely and one is amazing and one is very not amazing and I, I continue to think that's going to affect Florida until we get that up to let's call it modern day football or we just have two guys at receiver that are so good you can run the most basic of routes because they're going to beat you and they're going to create their own separation but we don't have that right now so I would like to see better stuff on film out of the out of the wide receivers with their play design that part bothers me lastly super high point the wide receiver blocking is phenomenal the way this team blocks as a unit is unbelievable. There's there's the play where I believe it's Montrell comes out towards your screen, you know, heading heading towards the uh, north end zone in the swamp. And you have like, as soon as he gets out the weak side, you have like Ricky Pearsall. And then Xavier Henderson comes sprinting up from like 20 yards back to get some lead blocks on this play. I mean, this team blocks. So well said. that's really nice. But we have to do something about obviously our ability to throw the football it's just not going to get it done with 66 yards against better opponents. Yeah, especially, you know, I really love Montreal and Etienne, but they're not like Fred Taylor in the 90s where you give them an inch, he's gonna, they're going to blast through the hole. For their success, it has to be a team effort to have that many explosive plays. Like, you need the wide receivers blocking. You need the tight ends being effective. And it the, turns that, you know, what would be maybe a 12-yard play into – a 40 yard play a lot of times. So that is really good to see. Um, I know I picked up on that too. I mean, these guys, when you mentioned two that we didn't say a lot last year, we talked a lot about like shorter and Whittemore who's not on the field ton being effective blockers. So Pearsall coming in and being an effective blocker right away is a big plus for this. Yeah. Just to comment a little on the passing game feels like we alternate like ineffectiveness, right? So there's some, rollouts where you look down the field and there's two guys around each receiver. It's like, where are you going to go? Nowhere. Or it's just a little bit of inaccuracy from AR. You know, that's not his biggest strength is putting the, his ball placement. Or as you said, like a play like with Frazier's, he's open, but you have to put a perfect ball on him. And even still, it's difficult to complete. Whereas, yes, as you, if you have a guy who is an elite wide receiver, that's he's like you can put him out there anywhere and he's going to walk under it. So that that's a frustrating thing that all those things together make for a really limited offense. Now, again, if you clean up some of that stuff, I think you can be more effective. And obviously, Florida has been more effective from at times, but there's just a lot of opportunities for it to go wrong especially when you need to hit big passing plays. This isn't like a precision offense where it's like, yeah, we throw the ball downfield, but we don't really need to to be effective. This team has to throw the ball downfield to reach its ceiling, and they're just not able to do that right now. No, and that's one thing we said on the Napier primer on the offensive video, that if you were a fan who thought, oh, we're going to run the ball all the time, you could enjoy this offense because it is an explosive passing offense. At Louisiana, he was hitting for over 10 yards per play frequently with a high completion percentage now florida does complete their passes they do tend to be bigger passes but we are way under what happened at louisiana for those downfield throws and completions outside of the tennessee game 
Uh, and to your point, Alan, this offense can be exciting because that's what happens. It can be tons and tons of chunk yardage, but we have to hit them. Against Kentucky, we didn't. Against Utah, we didn't. We survived with the run game. And against Missouri, we did not. And we won two of those three, uh, but all of those, you know, very close right there at the end. So either way, something to keep an eye on. We'll keep you posted all throughout the year to kind of what we see with this. But that was what was, I think, clearest on film. Yeah, and Florida's going to have to prove they're going to be able to do it. I mean, they're going to continue to see sack boxes, focus on the run game by default because of the success Florida's having, but also the lack of success in punishing you down the field. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Richardson. Um, despite those numbers, it didn't feel like he played a terrible game. Right, it feels like we've been alternating between good AR and good AR and bad AR, where he just imploded, or he played fairly well. Um, yes, it, it was weird because right, we did only pass the ball fourteen times. Right, that's not a lot, so there wasn't a lot of chances for success. We did try to push the ball down the field. So we thought that we'd try and go back to some of the Napier preferred play action pass. How did he look doing that in this game? Yeah, he struggled. He struggled uh, for sure. He's, he's just not comfortable turning his back to the field. And Napier clearly tried to force the issue again this week. The majority of his dropbacks were turning his head or his body all the way away from the field. And you can just see it as soon as he snaps back down to get his post-snap read. He doesn't like it. His footwork's not the same, doesn't have the same balance, doesn't have the same confidence. He is not confident with that look. That being said, the pass to Frazier's was a turn to your back, you know, kind of play, but it was also a layup read. Like there's three guys out there. You have two receivers, the safety comes down, you know you're throwing the post route. But on other ones, he just is not as comfortable. So that was not why I think, you know, Florida struggled in the game. And in fact, to your point, actually on film, AR played a, a pretty solid game. Misses the, the, the east-west screen, which we've been missing a lot to um, Henderson. That's a that's a knock on him. The pick that he threw was actually entirely created by him being a very successful quarterback with his reads. We ran three hitches. Nobody was open. He opened up Ricky because he looked off to Henderson with a little pump fake, which he knew would create the space to throw the ball he throws on third and 14, which he does then throw with a guy right in his face, where he elevates it maybe a yard or two too high. Even then, Pearsall catches the football. Great play by the safety to separate, but he didn't have that throw. That throw is not there. Heard a lot of people saying to me afterwards, oh, he had that throw there forever. No, he did not. I have the all 22. That throw was never there until he opened the throw at the very end. He never had that throw. And so he created that throw on third and 14. When you got to punt the ball anyway, what do you want to do? Take a sack? You're punting. Okay, great. So the pick resulted in a net 15-yard scenario, but it could have been a completion. That was a really smart play. He had one horrible play, which was going to be a first down completion on third and five to Ricky Pearsall if it wasn't that Garage got beat, which he never gets beat. He just got straight beat one-on-one, and Richardson's about ready to throw it, and then he just got to eat it. You got to eat the ball, right? He doesn't, tries to make a hero play. And still most likely that's going to be a Incomplete pass. Correct. Also, so he gets really unlucky twice, which tends to be a trend for AR. He seems to get the worst case scenarios when he chooses to take a risk on something. But actually, outside of that, Alan, he played a he played a, a pretty good game. I mean, in general, he played a pretty good game. And so I think we know what he's uncomfortable with now. I think we know what he's comfortable with now. The question is going to be whether Napier kind of tends to keep forcing the issue this season 
by having him turn his back to the field or whether he limits that. I would limit that. At this point, I've seen enough to know I'm halfway through the year. I want to get wins. This is not effective for us. I'm going to limit him turning his back to maybe five, six times a game on plays when I feel like it's pretty safe, it's pretty easy, and I'm going to let him keep his eyes downfield. He's so much better at doing that to keep him in the groove. And case in point, the very first play of the game, we completed a pass. We did keep his eyes downfield. So I think Napier totally knows this. I have no doubt that he knows this. Uh, so we're going to see how we manage that. But if you thought AR played poorly, if you're in the camp where Tyler Rummer is, where he's texting our group thread, Allen, that maybe AR is not the guy. He might be done with AR. He hadn't seen enough from him. The film does not say that. The film says it's a young guy who's still got a ton of ceiling talent, who's adjusting to a new offense, who has some really great moments, has some sensational NFL-level throws, like the rollout to Ricky Pearsall absolute laser from 20, 26 yards, total air yards. That is a, a throw very few people can make with enough arm strength there, Allen. And also the ability to read the field, full field reels, create openings in zones. He can do all those things while doing things that guys who don't have a lot of experience at starters still are going to do when you're very athletic. He still makes mistakes, but this game uh, was, was relatively fine on film. And again, I fault more the fact that why aren't we making this easier for our quarterback by having better route combinations, a more vertical attack-oriented scheme, punishing these teams from loading up with eight guys in the box so frequently and making it easier for him. That, I think, would help your quarterback a lot. But all in all, to your point, Alan, I would not grade AR negatively in this game at all. I think he actually had a good game, one really bad decision. Other than that, it could have been a great game with a few more of those throws being completed. For sure. And yeah, if Frazier's comes down with that ball, I think we look at his stat line very differently. Sure, and the screen goes to Henderson, you know. Right. And on that same play to Henderson, we had a walk-in touchdown to Xanders. Now, that's not his look. That is when you're running an east-west screen like that, and it's man-to-man defense, which we knew, that that play is going there no matter what. We're running other routes, but again, that's my theory. If teams want to keep pushing us man-to-man like this, Alan, attack them vertically. Take your tight ends and take your running backs, and for example, take your two receivers and just run them on goes. They're in man. They have to follow them. The safety's got to stay on the top. And then... Much like what Dan Mullen did against Georgia, take your tight ends and 12 personnel or take your running backs and put them on wheel routes or vertical routes early because often what happens, Alan, is the outside defender is looking at AR and looking at our tight end. And we so frequently run little flat routes that he can guard both of them at the same time. Threaten them with verticality. I think we can make things a lot easier. Yes, that's well said. Um, So I think it was last, I think it was this past week. There's a clip that was going around where Dan Orlovsky and Marcus Spears and Somebody else was debating shotgun play action versus under center play action. Uh, I know you saw it. You put it in the thread. This 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 past week, right? Yeah, this past yeah. Dylan Vlosky so, and uh, some other guys. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. I think that highlighted what we've been talking about in a different direction. We're not necessarily talking about under center, although that can well. Apply we we here. did say that's right. the best version of it, right? But for yes. sure. But whether it's the pistol or whatever, yeah, right? the pistol's a modified version, correct? That you you hear from the defenders how much more difficult it is to defend a play action pass. And that is why Billy Napier is being so stubborn. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great this. idea and scheme by him, by right. the way, when we're saying ditch it, it's not ditch it forever. That's, that's essential to how he wants to run offense. That is an, op- that's an optimal and ceiling level play, but tactically this season, maybe we need to reduce that. Size. Absolutely. And until I think AR proves that he can do Correct. that. Correct. Just limit it. And again, you can still run it a few times a game. I mean, it's like he can't do it, especially on some deep shots that it's optimal that you really sell that play fake, bake it in there. It's not like teams would be like, Oh, they, he turned his back. He's throwing it deep. We've run this enough now that you couldn't tendency us too much on it. Correct. And 
I don't know. It's it's getting really we're, we're we're cutting it too thin, right now. Can we beat Missouri playing sub optimally in the passing game? Obviously, yes. But you're not going to beat the better teams doing that. And so, if you're trying to practice this, I get it. But this is too close. Florida could have lost this game, and I get I get that this season is about development. Um, but I'm with you 100. percent I've seen enough. I'm sure Billy Napier should have seen enough. We'll see what it looks like against maybe LSU, against Georgia. Who knows? All right. Um, the wide receiver screens. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and talk about this. I, I just feel like it needs to go. They are largely ineffective, especially the ones with Henderson in motion, trying to get him the ball. It's a it's a it's not a play that AR seems very comfortable with. Henderson doesn't seem that comfortable with it or that effective at it. I was trying to come up with a like counter proposal, like in my head, I like to do this when I don't understand what is, what is the coaching staff looking at that I'm not seeing or what is, what are they trying to accomplish? Can you give me like the steel man of why that is? Why, what does he see or what is he wanting to see to make him call that play so many times? So, well, that's a good question. Sometimes on film review, I highlight it and say, you should never run this screen ever at any point in time, and I hate it, and here's why. And we've done that before. We did not do that this game, but we've done it before this season where it's three receivers versus four defenders, and there's just no reason to ever run that play. It's stupid. Short side of the field sure. stuff, don't do it. The numbers are not there. The Henderson play was there, so we knew they're in man. They're in cover one man. We're going to motion from the strong side of the field where we have more players to the weak side of the field where we have only one receiver, which is shorter, which is your best blocker. And there's one defender on him with a safety, you know, single high, far away, can't affect the play. So when you motion Henderson across, he gets followed by his defender. In theory, what we're doing is shorter is now going to block the defender guarding Henderson, leaving him one-on-one versus the corner just to pick up six yards, which obviously if it's a guy like Kadarius Tony, it's probably a touchdown, if it's a guy like Henderson, we have not even really completed this pass yet to see if this works. We've been so woeful at it. But this was a time you could do that. And had we completed the pass, he would have gotten his chance one-on-one. Now, that Missouri defender was going to be there. If he tackles him, it's not a first down. That's why I don't like it. If you know for sure when you motion a man across there in man defense, then you have a million things you can do. On the right side, we had three receivers, right? A running back, a tight end, and a receiver, which is a confusing thing for teams to guard. They know you don't like the you do want to play safe ball. Take a risk. Open up. Go vertical, which we had the play call for. We ran the routes for them. They were just dummy routes, but they were there. So I think it's suboptimal to your point, Alan. It's it's a low level, but mainly it could be something I loved. Certainly. If we had a guy back there, if we have Jalen Waddle, if we have pick your favorite guy who's really wiggly back there. We don't have that. Henderson's proven not to be that guy at all. He's made a few guys miss here and there, but he's anything but like Mr. Elusive. And to your point, AR, for some inexplicable reason, is not good at throwing that pass. He errs on throwing it too far forward, which is a good place to err because you want to throw your receiver into the space. If you throw it behind him, the play's dead. But they just are not connecting on that play. But again, it's also like a very low-level play. In general, when Henderson is not proven to be a dynamic guy with the ball in his hands. That's either a great decision that winds up in touchdowns or in Florida's case, you're just barely going to get the first down. I think there's better options available to you, but to defend Napier there, that screen 
at least had merit football-wise to run. We also successfully ran one a little bit later um, on third down, on third and two to convert, where we ran the screen in the right situation because we had positive numbers. And we also, as I highlight on film review this week, Alan, we finally got rid of something that's been bothering me to no end. Uh, just the exact two plays before, we tried to run a similar play. We ran a ball fake to Etienne. Richardson does not get it out in time and throws this little duck pass that bounces. And I had said last week on film review, we don't need to fake the run fake. Every team is selling out on run anyway. It doesn't even matter. The linebackers, doesn't, they don't care about what's going on with that tight end. And so thankfully, two plays later on third down, AR didn't even fake it to Etienne. He just caught it and threw it, and it was a first down. So if you're going to run those kind of screens, those would be good for Florida to run because that will keep the conflict defender honest and it will keep him outside of the box. Whereas teams right now are getting to have their cake and eat it too by keeping them lined up in the box and guarding that tight end or receiver and covering AR if he keeps on the zone read. Yes. Okay. You said a lot of stuff that I said a lot of stuff. No, no, but that I would agree. (laughs) I don't hate the play inherently, especially as you described it in the right situation into the right defensive alignments. And if you have, it can be a really great play. So I'm not like, it's not like, you know, running a fade on the goal line, which I just hate. Don't do it. There's much better options, which feels like we could do different things. It's not successful for us. So it's not like if we run it, like we ran it and you like picked up first down, it's fine. Like do it if you need to do it. But that was the optimal time. That's what you're saying, right. right? Run it in optimal scenarios. Don't just decide, oh, they're in man. Let's run a screen because it's the safest and easiest way to try to pick this up. But it's also like the least EV play you can Well, it's make. safe. It's kind of safe in that it's low risk. In theory. Yeah, right. but it, it, you're not likely to pick it up either, though, I don't think. Not, with, well, especially not the way we're used that, and right? it just doesn't need to be a feature of our offense, right? If you ran it one time a game, whatever, I don't care. But it feels like we're... Like, this is one of our base plays. We like it the most, and it should not be. It should be demoted to, like, only when situationally very advantageous. When I think what you're saying is, like, our experienced real data on this play, this season with this personnel is not working. And it doesn't mean that that play can't work with other personnel, which we stated. But at what point as a coach do you say, this is a great play. I love this play. It's worked for me for 10 years. With this particular team right now, it's just not working at a level that justifies its use at all. I have to stop doing it. And I think that's what you're saying. And yes. I, I totally Good agree summation. with that. I totally agree with that. Okay. You have a question that you put in here. Uh, will our offense be good enough as a running team that can't pass? It's a question that we'd got a couple of people yeah. that had asked us. So what do you think on that? Like, is this... First of all, I'm going to say right away, this is not what Napier wants the team to look like. And, and in fact, I'm going to say the most encouraging thing right now. After the game, this is what's great about Napier. We have a coach who who says real things that matter, that make sense. And what he said was, we have a formula to win, and we have yet to execute that formula this entire season. We are not doing it. We are not doing what we're setting out to do, and that's really encouraging. Followed by, I've got a list of things that I'm trying to fix every single day, which I believe him because he can say, A, I have a formula. B, we're not playing to the formula. And C, I can see that on film. But I can also see progress. So I want to say that first, this is a different situation than what we've seen in the past with with Florida's teams because you hear certain things being said, but you wouldn't see that stuff out there. All right, now with that through the lens, the question is, is this offense in general, which I think a lot of Gators fans are saying, is this style of offense, is it not going to work to be able to compete with the better teams? Or is it too early to even say that? I think it's a little too early, but you said a good, you placed that well there. We're we're not a running team that can't pass or is unwilling to pass, right? That 
hey, we're just going to run it every time and only very occasionally throw it. We would like to be more effective throwing the ball. That's part of what we're working towards. So on a baseline level, can the offense be good enough as just as a pure running team if you were like going to use – if I duplicated this stat line, 8 of 14 for 66 yards and a touchdown, let's get rid of the turnovers. Or maybe you can keep the interception in there. I guess that was, you know, that's part of doing business there. Obviously, you can win doing that. And I think you could beat a lot of the teams on the schedule. I think you can beat South Carolina, perhaps. I think you can beat Florida State, perhaps. I think you can beat Vanderbilt. I don't think you'd have a hope in a, at all of beating Georgia. Now, A&M is, they're a wonky team, so who knows. So there's not like Florida can't win out doing what they're doing right now, being marginally more effective. But that's not what they're trying to do. There's not like they're like, hey, we're bumping up against the top. We just got to do this at the best. We're like 90% there, just a little bit better, and we're going to get there. There's a whole big ocean of upside here if they can start to get better at this. Right? We saw this in the Tennessee game. Florida can't put like a good defensive effort and a good offensive effort in the same game yet. Kind of they did that in Utah. Good enough, right, to beat a fairly good Utah team we're finding out. Not a dominant Utah team. So, yes, I'll say that. They can be good enough, but not not really. Not not to play to the level that Florida wants to play at. Yeah, definitely not. Simple answer there is definitely not. You have to be, as we profiled in that breakdown on his offense, this offense, if it's going to be a championship offense, it has to be hitting frequently those vertical shots to where if you're looking at Florida's, you know, completions per attempt or sorry, yards per attempt, rather, uh, you need to see that being above 10 yards. That's the formula for Billy Napier is he wants to average, you know, four and a half, five yards a carry against, against the good teams, average four, 4.1 against a really good team. But that 10 yards per pass completion is like where it has to be for this style of offense to win. Uh, that's what it just has to be. And so when you're getting 4.4, 4.3, last week was the same thing. We had like 4.4. I mean, it's, just, it's very, very consistent that Florida's passing offense is not hitting those shots. And we've said this all year long outside of Tennessee. So we've seen it's possible. We've seen it make adjustments against Tennessee. I have to believe against Missouri, he felt like it was another opportunity for him to try to get AR to improve upon his his kind of weakness, which I think he did. So we'll see now what remains to be seen with, again, about half a season's worth of data. Uh, but don't lull yourself into thinking Billy Napier wants to be a, a power running team. First of all, we don't run power. We run zone. Zone running is not power running. We run some power, but we're a zone team. Very different style there. We're not trying to run the ball 55 times a game. We're not Jim Harbaugh from 10 years ago, right? It's a very different offense. Uh, but we do have to connect on these vertical shots. And that is a feature of his offense. He's not going to go away from that. And I can guarantee you, as frustrated as you may be as a fan, he's more frustrated that we're not connecting on these passes. Don't forget that Napier was a quarterback. Quarterbacks want to throw the football. They don't want to run the football every single time. So running is an avenue to open up the vertical game. Passing-wise, Florida's got to get better at that. Otherwise, we're going to continue to struggle. And it's going to make some of these games like the Missouri game, where it's close right down till the end. All right, changes we like to see. We've already talked about better pass play design, better, more vertical routes I would 100% put in there. Like not to be so safe in some of these designs. And 
I, you can't just say this like better route running. That's not going to be magically fixed, but I think that's where you would hope that the better receivers, like if you watch Ricky, his routes, beautiful, his head fakes, putting his foot in the ground. You outlined where we fail to do that. Um, and we've talked about keeping AR facing the field. Anything else in the play design category that you'd want to see them do more of? No, you name them. We mentioned them, but you know, the more vertical routes parts really for, for tight ends and running backs, especially when we know that conflict defender is playing both. That's the key. Our receivers go vertical a lot, especially if we send just two guys out, but it's mainly coming from the other guys using more of that deception. And I think the most important thing for the LSU game is keeping AR's face facing the field. LSU's defense is actually solid enough. Uh, you know, they got torched by Tennessee, but they're a solid enough defense for sure, as, we're, as you're going to find out when we study them. And I don't think you want to be messing around with AR having issues with confidence when he just looks so confident when he's not doing that. He's a different looking quarterback in the pocket when he's not doing that. So keep an eye on that. If I were Napier, I would definitely just say, I want to do this. I can't quite do it yet. I'd rather win football games right now than than try to get the ceiling. I'll take a sub-ceiling consistent effort rather than the occasional ceiling effort and a really, really high-variance, low-floor effort. All right, let's move over and talk about the defense here. 370 yards total for Missouri. That's 220 passing, 150 rushing, 6.5 yards per pass, 3.6 yards per rush. They are very robust, 9 of 17 on third down. Uh, including some just atrocious third down pickups by the Florida defense. Three or four in the red zone. Um, defense had four sacks, two picks, and 13 tackles for loss. So that that's where I want to start. That if you look at the score, all right, Missouri put up 17 points. Florida has two turnovers, 13 tackles for loss, four sacks. That looks like a dominant effort. Like just if you just put that out there, you will take that every time from your defense. That's not the whole story, obviously. But if <laughs> what happened in between those, or let's talk about that first. How is Florida able to generate so many tackles for loss and sacks? Well, Florida for the first time all year began to bring some pressure in the second half. We've talked about this with Tony. He's a guy who brought a lot of pressure at Louisiana. He prefers to play safe. Safe meaning using simulated pressures. So you're going to bring pressure from different areas using creepers. But you're not sending extra guys. You're not going to send extra guys. So what does that mean? Sending four guys or three guys would be what we're going to call standard pass defense. You're not bringing pressure. Five or more is bringing pressure. Florida's not brought a lot of pressure. I think one reason for that is they're, we're still just trying to figure out how to run the base defense, which we're going to talk about. In this, and you have some guys in, in, in Cox and Dexter who do a lot just on and their own. Correct. Here's the other thing is you don't have to bring extra pressure to your point, Alan, if you're getting good pressure with three or with four. So I thought that, that Florida started to feel confident. They knew what Missouri maybe was trying to do and they were bringing pressure, pressures from area where Missouri wasn't going. And also just Florida's defensive line was, was getting in the backfield frequently. One guy was getting in on almost every single play. And then there were moments where two or three were, I think Missouri started to break down due to the heat. Some in this game, it was hot there. I think it did affect them. So Florida was just able to, exert some athletic dominance and strength at the line, which is a significant goal of this program. It's one of the things they want to do is dominate the line of scrimmage. They did that. It was nice to see that. And 13 tackles for loss, Allen, is an extraordinary number. 
And if you wanted to just end the defensive breakdown right now, you would end it by saying Florida put some of the best stuff on film that we've seen on defense and simultaneously some of the worst stuff on defense. And the variance is still a barbell. But the good news is we finally have a barbell. We hadn't seen a whole lot of good stuff on film at all as a unit. We've seen individual plays, but there were several defensive plays where everyone did their job. And some of those resulted in great plays by the defense. And that's excellent. And others were dumpster fires where two or three people, that's way too many people not doing their job, didn't do their job. And it looks horrible. So that's what you would say. And you could move on. We're going to get into the nitty gritty here because a lot of interesting things happened. But I think to your point, Alan, the stats reflect, I think, exactly what this game was like for Florida's defense. Just a barbell of results. Great or terrible. Very few things kind of normal. Yeah, there are a lot of plays where I was super enthused by how the defense was responding to what Missouri was doing. Missouri tried to stretch them out to the outside. You'd have three Florida defenders right there. It's almost impossible for Missouri to gain any yards, and that's where you had some of those tackles for loss where they're losing a yard or two. And it was like, wow. Everyone knew exactly what to do. Not that it was overly complicated what Missouri was trying offensively on those plays, but we've had basic stuff bust us quite a bit. So that was, as you said, really encouraging that you saw some moments where, yeah, everybody gets it. Everybody's in the right spot. Missouri's trying to do something. And we're not just limiting them. We're completely shutting them down. And, I, and there's two guys I think we need to highlight. Of course, there, there's more. But um, I feel like we have to give some credit here to Ventrell Miller. He was one of the storylines of this game. Just casually watching this game, he's everywhere. The announcers are picking up on it. You, you know it's obvious if the announcers are picking up on it at least in my view, but he played great. He's been playing through pain. We've seen him not on the field and the Gators are lost without Ooh, him. It's bad. And, you know, I think over Ventrell's career, we've been probably sparse with praise for him. Right. But he's so essential to what Florida is doing. And he's actually playing very well right now in what we're asking him to do. I don't, I think if he doesn't play as, Florida probably loses this game. Oh, almost certainly. If, there, if he doesn't play, our defense is not a defense anymore. Yeah. And there's a the series that he's taking a break. You know, he's not going to be on the field every play. Missouri goes right down the field and scores easily. He's that big of a difference. Now, that's not because he's so great. He is playing well, but everybody is. I think that's why we've been hesitant to praise him that he's like a all-American, first round, this guy's going to be the best player in the league. He's very effective. He's playing very well. But the drop-off behind him is so vast is why it shows up so, I don't know, demonstrably true. But I do want to give him credit. Like, we've we've been, I think sparse is the right word, but he played fantastic in this game. I was really impressed by him. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I think sparse is because originally we talked about Ventrell a couple of years ago, and it was he's an average SEC linebacker. But we're Florida, and you're trying to contend for a title. Extra years will make you better with experience, and he has gotten better. But I think the super positive silver lining here, Alan, Florida's players that were good under the previous staff are much better under this staff. We'll talk about Jaden Hill, who was already a guy I loved, and what he puts on film. But there's no doubt that Ventrell Miller is getting much better. He's better, for sure. He's much better. He's much better. And he gets better every game. Uh, and to your point, without him, we're lost. Which means when we see the young guys out there floundering, because it's such a hard position to play, you can at least say, okay, a lot of these guys are getting it. That means the individual players struggling to grasp this concept. 
but without a doubt, all the love in the world should be given to Ventrell. And it's safe to say now that he is our MVP on defense for the rest of the season. We cannot afford to lose him. We said we were thin at linebacker to start. We never had good feelings if he wasn't going to play this season. But it's clear as day now that we are so woefully bad behind him at this stage. And that does not mean these guys are going to be bad next year or the year after. But right now, as it stands, heading into LSU week, we don't have another linebacker that can play reliably or consistently. Bernie's our next best bet, and he's an absolute wild card for what's going to happen with him on any given play. So Ventrell being a rock-solid contributor there, as the D-line gets better at observing their rules, at controlling their gaps, that makes Ventrell better. And I think that's the the thing to hit on here. Florida's D-line has been taking a lot of ridiculously, I think, unnecessary and perhaps uneducated football flack. People just don't understand how defense works. Assigning blame on them for the run game. But let's just spend a minute here talking about how do you stop a running team in general? How do you stop a run, Alan? Well, newsflash, it's not up to your four defensive linemen to stop the run. That's not how this works. It's not like, oh, look at this defensive line stopping the run. They each have a gap. And you know who else has gaps? The linebackers have gaps. So a win for a defensive lineman, a win, like a super win, is that you push your offensive lineman or your double team right into the backfield. That's win number one. Win number two is you push them into the gap that you are blocking. Essentially, you're an A gap or you're a B gap or you're a C gap. You drive the opponent player into that gap. You block that gap, which then allows your own guy. Correct. Which then allows your linebacker to flow into, here's the important part, the space that will still be there. There's no chance that four defensive linemen can just close all the space. Hero plays when they throw their blocker off, they throw the lineman off, and they can fill the gap and tackle someone, right? That's actually not their primary job. That's not the primary goal. So a lot of times you're seeing people that are like, oh my gosh, our defensive line is so terrible. Actually, oftentimes they're in the right gaps, and we just do not get a good gap fill from our linebackers or our strong safety in Dean or anyone else. So I want to take a minute just to say that. But what this means is, as Ventrell is beginning to trust the gap discipline that Florida is now developing that we did not have for the past three years— He's able to flow quickly and more correctly to where the play is actually going. Now, if you have two linebackers doing this, Alan, you've got a really good front six. We don't have that yet. But I think that is what I wanted to say is helping him is his trust with the defensive line is helping him play faster, play better, play more accurately. This is a good sign on film that you oftentimes have four or five guys playing really good defense in the front seven. But if you have two of those guys that don't know what they're doing or can't get to the right gap, it's still not going to work. And that's why football is a great sport. It takes everyone doing the right thing. And you look at a big hole and you think, wow, that's just ridiculous by the defensive tackles. A lot of times it's not the defensive tackles that made that mistake. For sure. Yeah. If you have a the play design is to funnel the runner to a spot that a linebacker will fill. If he's not there, then you're running 10 yards into the right. Now, again, if you're getting blown off the ball. Correct. I mean, the defensive line can play poorly. Sure. And they have. Right. Yeah. But on the whole, but they generally. Yeah. Not art, just a defensive yeah. line. Anyway, yeah, you can get blown yeah. backwards. You can get blown out. Sure, you can get out taken of your, out of your You're gap. not in your gap that you're supposed to be in, right? And Florida's left their gap voluntarily a lot. We've talked about that. That's getting better every game. And I think that's the key, is that they're starting to work together. And I think this Missouri game was the result of Florida's defense improving in certain areas, allowing both the linebacker and Miller and the defensive line to begin to understand what it looks like to work together as a unit instead of just, I'm going to beat my guy and make a hero play. 
And that's what this defense desperately needs because we have not been playing like a unit since Grantham has been here. It's only gone downhill. This defense statistically is even worse than a lot of what Grantham's put out there. But a lot of that is because we're in this transition period trying to get to how a unit would play versus how individuals would play doing whatever they wanted. All right. Jaden Hill, who, let's note here, won SEC Defensive Player of the Week, is now playing again. Uh, for the Florida defense. So one, it's just awesome to see him out there playing after that injury. So two incredibly timely interceptions, one pick six, right? Another one to stall a drive. These weren't just like sometimes interceptions in inconsequential, right? It's third down, kind of like the one AR threw. it's third down. You're probably going to punt. You maybe lost 10 yards, whatever. These were monumental. Now, let me ask you this. Sometimes you're as a defensive back, you're just in the right time, right place. Someone throws you the ball. You didn't do anything spectacular. The quarterback did something dumb. Was this a right time, right place for him or just more of an excellent job by him getting to the right time, right place? Yeah, both, both of them. And, and what's going to be highlighted by this, first of all, is I'd like to say that, you know, Jaden Hill was a guy that last week on film review, I said, hey, he's wearing a knee brace on film. He can't come downhill on the hitch route, which he couldn't. And I don't know how Florida can play him if that's the case, but I hope they were playing him to give him confidence that he can, he, that he's good. And I knew he was meant, like I knew he was healthy, like Florida right. doctor wise. They're not going to put you out there. But mentally, the question was, does he get over it? And I thought, Alan, I loved his comment after the game. He said, I was supposed to wear a brace today, but I told myself I'm fine. I'm not wearing the brace. And I mentioned that because I'd circled it and said, you never see corners wearing braces or skill guys because it doesn't work. If, if, if you're cleared, you got to get out there and you have to play on that knee. And boy, did he ever. And both of his picks were him coming downhill. Uh, but the first one is a thing of beauty because it was a, it was the second one is really him. The first one though is a, is a team pick. And this is, this is like the culmination of things we've covered for yeah, years this cool. with this football team. So one, on Grantham's defenses, you would almost never see contact made by our linebackers or anyone else on underneath routes. They just wouldn't touch them, and it would drive me insane. We Every single week, we'd lose our minds. Well, Ventral Miller basically chucks, just chucks the receiver off of his route, which is important for multiple reasons, but it's really important because the cover three defender, in this case, Jaden Hill, is responsible for anything deep, but he also can come downhill. Now, Jaden knows what we knew. We had said that they love to run underneath routes. They're worst at throwing over the middle of the field. And a lot of their routes are coming back to the quarterback routes. So Ventrell chucks him off, goes to buzz over to the flat. So now Jaden knows the only guy he's got to even think about is the guy coming at him. The quarterback is staring at him. He sees his arm go back and Jaden goes straight down, straight down the line, throws it right to Jaden Hill. That's the culmination of film study, of Ventrell rerouting him, and of you trusting your job. Right, and the rerouting is important because it messes up the timing Timing's of the play. messed up. Now all of a sudden he's looking at him longer. You can confirm that's where he wants to go. Perfect. That's a unit pick. The second pick was also cover three, and Jaden Hill just ran the route for him. Inexplicably bad throw by Missouri, but a fantastic play. Now, here's the crazy part. We had said that Missouri was awful against man defense. Florida ran eight snaps in man, about, you know, not, not that many, I mean, eight of like 30 dropbacks they had, so not a ton. Missouri was four for eight for 29 yards, so Florida was very successful in this. In cover three, Jaden Hill has two interceptions. Outside of that, Missouri went 10 for 10 against Florida's cover three. Um, a lot of those were the big conversions that everyone saw in right. the second half when we're all losing our minds. So what does this tell you? This is important. 
This tells you that Florida's coaches are teaching cover three correctly or Jaden Hill's the only one that knows how to do it by himself. So let's hope he's not the only one who knows how to do it by himself. But there is an epidemic right now, not just with Florida Allen, but in college football of college corners not knowing how to play cover three. I don't know if these coaches aren't teaching them, but cover three is not when as a corner, you just decide that you're going to bail as far as you want to watch a completion occur in front of you. That is not the point of cover three. In cover three, you will give up a five-yard or shorter pass. That's what you'll give up. But everything else, you want to be doing what Jaden Hill does. You want to come downhill on a route when the route is actually stopping, breaking, digging, whatever. You don't just stand over top of it. Jason Marshall, I'm talking to you, who thinks cover three is basically to just run backwards infinitely and give up a million completions. That's not how you play it. So woeful cover three defense will cover what went wrong on some of these plays. But Jaden Hill, shining star, coming downhill. He came downhill on two other plays. They were incompletes or not thrown. He is understanding how you play zone defense. That gives me hope that he's not just learning that magically on his own. But we're going to find out depending on what the other corners begin to do because that was some super subpar stuff outside of Jaden Hill when it came to how we played zone for the other part of that game. 10 for 10 against Missouri is ridiculous. That should never happen. For sure. And I, this is another thing moving forward. With like, just like we talked about on the wide receiver screen pass, if your players can't run that defense, you just can't call it. You have to call something else, even if it's suboptimal. Because what you can't do is give up third and very longs over and over again. Right? Man. All right. Let's talk. Let's go ahead and talk about them. Right? Third down. Atrocious. The final quarter. Missouri basically stays alive through like some crazy conversions. Right? Pass caught in the flat on third and 22. That was my boy, too. Which yeah, that was Perkins. That was, and that Perkins is such a great tackler. But again, what, what happened there? He takes an inside angle for no reason. Mm-hmm. He almost never does that. So at least you want to say this is not a recurring thing for Perkins. He's a great tackler, but he, that was stupid. Florida's defense has been much better at this, Allen, taking the outside angle to pursue to the inside. They've been way better at this. But even then, Perkins misses. He still shouldn't convert. Yeah, what happens after that him, yeah. is a comedy of errors. Trevez is jogging to get there, maybe 70% jog. Doesn't even wind up touching him. And then Torrance, who's normally really solid, decides that rather than try to make a tackle, he's going to just obliterate the corner who's not even ready to block him yet. So on film review, it is a joke. I mean, if I'm Tony, I'm going to spend, I'm going to show that every single, every single day this week. This is not how you play defense. First by Perkins, second by Trevez, third by Torrance. The heck are we doing? The game's in balance. We can knock him out. It's third down and whatever it was, 22. And you let a flat pass check down go for a first down. Never. That should never happen. Yes. Terrible. Awful. And it's not like the guy who catching him is a fun story. Cody Schrader is a is a you know walk on essentially. He's a guy. Fine. Good for him. Nice play. Right. But and he and he's a good player, but he he, yeah. This isn't like he you said, Tyreek Hill, right? No, he didn't make any moves. Um eighteen yards on third and fifteen, twenty yards on third and eighteen, or third and fifteen, I guess, and then third and eighteen. You mentioned Jason Marshall, Jalen Kimber was another offender here, but just an overall breakdown on those third downs, which basically put Missouri back in the game. They did. Now, Kimber, in Kimber's defense, Kimber, they two on one him, and he is a nanosecond away from batting that ball down. It was a floaty pass, or it's going to be a pick. Uh, but again, if you're Florida, by that point in time, they had showed you that they were punishing your cover three type defense. 
Florida goes to an inverted cover two there, where they bring Torrance down to the sticks over the middle of the field, a place we know, Allen, they don't like to throw the football. They've been punishing you on the sideline. And Kimber's stuck covering a two-on-one. He has to stay on top of that. So he actually plays that exactly right. But the earlier ones you mentioned, cover three, Jason Marshall. First of all, he just gives one up on the first one. There's nobody deeper than him. He just gives it to him. The second one is, prepare yourself, is trading. Trading's the underneath defender who's supposed to, to buzz to that underneath route. They run two vertical routes. He's got to carry the second one. He just stands there guarding no one looking at the quarterback. Yeah, we talked about that. And so Missouri was, this is smart. Good play by Missouri. If you find out that the team you're playing cannot successfully run their zone defense, then punish them. And they ran the appropriate routes to punish Florida. Really, though, Jason Marshall being the offender were just consistently all game long. He gave up multiple 8, 9, 10-yard completions in cover three. That is not how that's supposed to happen. So I'm really going to hope that this team gets a hold of Jason Marshall because he's an excellent corner last year. But this year, what he's putting on film and zone defense, which Florida's playing a lot of zone, not a lot of man, where he was great, is not right. And so it tells me... He's not comfortable in zone. We've had Kiwan Ratliff on the podcast, Alan, years ago. And Kiwan, one of the best zone defenders, not comfortable in man. People have preferences. So that's part of the deal, right? I think Marshall's much more comfortable playing man. We're not asking him to play a lot of man. He's got to figure out how to play zone for this team to be better. But regardless of what the problem was, a lot of third down conversions that hurt, silver lining, Florida put Missouri in all those different thirds downs you mentioned, which means they were dominating on first and second down. It's a good problem to have as long as it doesn't become recurring or systemic. But there's a lot of things Florida's got to look on in that film and say, we do not know how to play zone correctly. And if I'm a coach, I like that it's clear as day. If you think you know how to play zone, you don't. So this week, we're going to revisit what this means to play zone defense. These are very basic routine coverage beaters they're giving to you. How are we messing this up? I think I I got so frustrated in, in the thread. I was like, Missouri should just kneel twice to get to third and long. Why not? And put us into cover three where they can do basically whatever they want, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I think Florida fans are, you know, a little bit traumatized by the third and Grantham where third down where we're playing a zone where, yeah, it felt like teams could just do whatever they wanted. We were going to give it to them. All right. Uh, Napier said something about bending but not breaking in terms of characterizing our defensive effort. Um, let me ask this. Does it seem like we are purposely bend, but don't break? Definitely not. Some teams play that way. That's not Tony's style. That's not what he wants to do. I think what Napier is saying is that's just what the unit did. Did Right. Is they bent. The coaches did not want them to bend, but they were bending, but they didn't break. And that was very true. The pick six, the pick in the red zone, the stop on fourth down, and that's what we talked about. There was some great stuff on film and some bad stuff on film. And on the fourth down, let's give Trevez credit. He's a guy who puts mixed bag stuff on film every single week. He got beat earlier in the game on an easy in route like he typically does when teams go man. And they wanted to go with him again. And they tried to run a rub route, which is a good route combination. And uh, he played some of the best defense that we've seen him play on film against that particular play. And there's no doubt that Drinkowitz didn't specifically attack Trevez on that play because he did right uh but on fourth down he was right there yeah made a play throw window Florida had a good defense on they were in the right call and they made a stop uh so again mixed bag of stuff from the defense but no this is not a bend by bend but don't break strategic defense again Louisiana 
they generally were a very strong defense. There was no bend but don't break in them whatsoever. And that's where they want to get this unit to. We're just we're just far away from that there. But 13 tackles for loss, four sacks. If we get off the field on a few of those third downs in the second half, Allen, Florida probably wins this game 31-10, 27-10, 34-10. I mean, this is a running away victory. And that's why I think if you're a coach, you're saying we're just we're just not able to put this formula together yet. Not even at really 65% formula. We're at like 50% formula, but we still got the win. Okay. <laughs> well, the obvious fix is to fix cover three or not call cover three. You got to call cover three, though. It's <laughs> essential. You got you to gotta fix I mean, it. You got to fix cover three. It's not a hard defense. But if run. you can't fix it by next week, I wouldn't call it. Well, just get Jaden out there and teach all of them how to do it. For sure. But it's not complicated. I feel no. like I feel like this is not a complicated thing. Somewhere along the lines, the defenders got the wrong idea for what they're doing. But again, turn on college football. You see this across the country all Saturday long. Turn the, because turn high schools the, don't run cover three? I think in high school, a lot of coaches don't teach cover three. They don't have time. Yep. They teach cover three, but it's basically like, hey, don't give up a touchdown here because in high school you're often playing teams that don't throw the ball all that well. And they just want to throw a bomb on you. But in the NFL teams know how to play cover three. And that's why you don't see like wide open dudes catching 10 yard hitch routes. Right? So for Florida, let's just get this cleaned up. There seems to be an issue here. Let's be more aggressive. And with LSU coming up, spoiler alert, they don't throw the ball downfield well at all. They do like these intermediate routes. We're going to need to not just give them those throws. Okay, special teams. We've talked about Adam Mahalik being successful. He's not super successful in this game. Went one for three. Uh, I think we found his range, right? That if it's under 45, he'll more likely than not hit it. Over that, he's going to be, I don't know, maybe 50-50. You would hope that he would have made one of those two kicks. I think that if you're a Florida team, that would be your expectation, right? You don't want to put him in that situation very often. He's not a weapon, but he can be, you know, effective from shorter distances. So I think they just have to, without, unless they're just desperate and have no other options, you don't want him kicking anything over 45. Well, you obviously have a a huge late guy in Trey Smack. That's true. Who's in the bench. Who's your five-star. Well, he's doing kickoffs now. Yeah. And he's hammering the ball out of the end zone. Which, you know, I think what Napier is looking for for him from him is consistency. And he obviously got that job done on kickoffs. They always knew he had the bigger leg, but he's consistently hammering the ball way out of the end zone. Also, if you haven't watched this yet, go ahead and pay attention to Trey Smack on Saturday. He will celebrate all of his kickoffs. <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you what he does, but just watch him I'll run down the field. Him. Enjoy the celebration. It is a full-on celebration with his other special teamers. Uh, it's, it's pretty entertaining for just a regular kickoff. But I I think it's very possible that we see Trey Smack entering into be Florida's field kicker, if not this week, but perhaps next. Especially for something for a longer distance, I think you'd and want to correct. Try. That's what I was going to say. You could keep you could go to two of them if you want, you know, because I think that um, that Milahek is 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 solid. He's consistent. The ball, just as Caleb Sturgis would say, does not jump off his leg ever. But it's, it comes off very clean every time. It's always a makeable chance. If he's if we're kicking a thirty-two yarder, I would just say every time I'd be very confident with him. Oh yeah, he's super consistent, and that's good. So use both of their skills right now. Don't make the freshman feel the pressure out there and let him break. But hey, there's no pressure on the freshman either. It's fifty-five yarder. Get out there, take a shot. No big deal. We know for you sure. got the leg for it. So yeah, 
Also, but, we had one good punt return, we should mention. We had a <laughs> yes, punt return. It happened. The, the it was first there. punt return. Yeah, how about that? Three points, which loomed large in this game. Yes, it did. And we'll have to give credit here to Henderson. Again, it, theoretically, I think he makes a good punt returner. Functionally, he doesn't often do what he did on Saturday, but great job by him. Yeah, perhaps he's feeling it out. I mean, for him, it's, he's, he's really playing. He's a team player right now. He's running a sure. ton of those orbit sweeps and jet sweeps as a wide receiver. That's not something he wanted to be running every play. He's running it all the time, and he's functioning as punt returner. He has not been impressive at punt returner, but that was a nice job there in an SEC game, so hopefully we'll see some more of that. Yeah, and if you can get that for Florida, that's really going to help you. Like You would want them to live up to their name as game changers, which they – Largely haven't. I don't, except for changing the game in the negative with kickoff return penalties. All right. Um, coaching decisions. Okay. There's an obvious one here. Florida calls a timeout when Missouri does not have any timeouts as they're lining up for a field goal. Uh, in the moment, I screamed because what you don't want to do is give a team ample time to line up their kick, right? So this is not an icing the kicker situation. This is. You want them to run on the field. This is optimal. You want them to have to sprint out there, speed up their process, their operation. Uh, I think I read somewhere that we didn't have enough men on the field, and that's why we called the timeout. Do you know if that got confirmed? So I don't, but the simple explanation here is that is the only explanation, is that we messed something up because this is a situation you expect as a coach. You know that Missouri has no timeouts left. You know that if they do not convert, they have to kick a field goal immediately. And if the clock is running, they cannot stop it. You know that. You're ready for that. You have your guys lined up if you want to make a sub on the sideline. They sub. You get the sub. They give you time to sub. It's not like you have to get on there in one second. So Florida's aware of that, but humans make mistakes. It's possible that obviously somebody wasn't ready or who knows what happened or they don't go in. And if that's the case, then of course you call your time out there. You have to call your time out there. Time doesn't really matter in that situation. You're not going to get the ball back with any time to do anything, and you're not going to help them by calling timeout if indeed you're in the wrong. If you're not in the wrong, which is why you were freaking out, Alan, if you have the right guys out there, then calling timeout is an egregious mistake. It's Because ludicrous. you only help the opponent's special team get out there, take their time, set up like normal. They're not rushed anymore. So we're all going to hope without confirmation that the reason we just mentioned is the reason that happened. If that's not the reason, then it's just wrong. And then I think Billy just doubled down by icing him for good measure because whatever at that point in time. And he iced him again, by the way, it should be noted in the way that you and I don't like to ice kickers, which is waiting too long to call timeout. So he gets the practice kick. (laughs) I mean, this is stuff that you don't have to get paid millions of dollars to understand. So no, right. just call that earlier. Coaches coaches around the world, please, just call the timeout before the kicker gets to kick Even, the practice kick. Yeah, and they're going to kick it, so they're you got to call that it. way yeah, earlier. We talked about it. As soon as you see the special team's offensive line sort of begin to go out of a, a mushy little huddle and into some sort of line, you call it right then. That's it. Don't wait any longer than that. That's as long as you get. Okay, a few final thoughts here. Um, I think it's appropriate. You've already... M- kind of talked about this a little bit to talk about first year coach expectations. Right. So I think the question in my mind is, are we still on track for first year coach expectations? And what are those that the program is up and down that is inconsistent on probably lots of areas that week to week, you're 
you're not going to get the same result. Um, that losses will happen when they shouldn't. That maybe wins might happen when they shouldn't because they're outside of expectations. And so I think Florida had a really interesting data point with the Utah win and then had a really interesting in the other direction data point with the Kentucky loss in terms of how the team performed. And it's been somewhere in the middle after that. Um, But I was trying to calm someone down that first-year expectations, I think for Florida, you don't want to be bad. Being being bad is is not a good look, and it's probably – bodes really poorly for the future. But with this many teams at Florida's like roughly same level, we talked about coin flip games that, you know, I mean, famously we talk about a lot. Nick Saban lost to Louisiana Monroe with like seven and five Kirby low output, urban low output. Um, Would you agree that we're, this is still within the cone of expectations here, the cone of certainty if it's a hurricane for a first-year coach. Oh, this is right within it. And I can't imagine anyone could say it's it's not. Historically speaking, based upon the data and the evidence, absolutely. This is right on par. The program even looks like it's undergoing a culture change. It's undergoing a system change. His press conferences are above, I think, expectations of what you want from your coach. He gives a really nice, clean press conference, which is something Florida fans, I think, have not had in a long time. He's genuine. That's important. Recruiting seems to be, cross your fingers here, Alan, on track to potentially be top five this year. That's possible with what we're hearing buzz-wise, right? But regardless, just on-field performance, this team is changing identities, changing styles. We're four and two. We have winnable games in front of us against other teams that are doing the same type stuff. So I think you're on track. To the point to where even if Florida goes, let's just say, you know, nine and two or ten and two versus eight or seven wins, the difference between those may not even matter. Because it may come down to some ending of a game, as long as the coaches handle it correctly, where whatever. We've talked about wanting to see the progression and the style change and the improvements change. And so far, although there's been frustrating points, as there would have been with Nick Saban year one or the Kirby Smart year one or whatever, the trajectory is very positive in my opinion, but the data is still sparse. So at this point, not enough data to say he's going to be the guy who gets it done or he's the guy who doesn't get it done, but enough to say that this is definitely, as you said, well within the dartboard of what first-year coaching expectations would be, really from top to bottom, offense, defense, special teams, press conferences, recruiting, the whole right. thing. Right. I don't think Florida should be having any buyer's remorse if if people are feeling that a lot of the losses come from your quarterback mentally imploding, which maybe not – I guess they, that's the Kentucky loss. He didn't mentally implode in Cincinnati. The, the, the weird result against USF, I yeah, guess. Yeah, USF was a weird right. result. But USF played Cincinnati really tough True. this past week. And look, college football this year is anything but predictable. So take comfort in that. And, and you know, Billy Napier is not Lincoln Riley. We mentioned Lincoln Riley was obviously the crown jewel of this class, undefeated now at USC. But USC is also not playing in the SEC. And there's differences between those two programs, where their talent levels were at, where right. their issues were at, and and just in general how that may look for a year one situation. But this this feels right on the dartboard. Yeah, like if you said. simulate this another thousand times, Florida probably ends up four and two 
most, most of the times. That's the average result. Right. That's they the median pro- result. For probably sure. beat Kentucky and lose to Utah more often. Sure. I think so. All right. One of the goals of this administration, I think one of their stated purposes and where they would like to hang their hat is being not mistake-free, but almost mistake-free. Penalties are way down for Florida. They're now fifth in penalty yards per game. I think this is a big win for a program. Uh, Billy Napier's regime that this has not historically been a program that's done well in penalty yardage year to year. Um, and I think that's really significant to the, this current team's success, right? If we're having a lot of penalties in this past game, we probably lose to Missouri. If you're behind the sticks a lot, some of those run plays probably don't happen. If you're giving up stupid penalties on defense that maybe you don't stop them as often as you would like to. So I think that that's probably being overlooked. But when I saw that stat, I was like, wow, that, that deserves some praise from for the coaching staff. Oh, completely. And this is very encouraging because if your coaching staff's going to lay down a goal like that, we are going to get the penalties down at a school in Florida where the penalties have never been down to any of our recollections oh, yeah. in the past 20 years. Maybe a few outlier years here there where it's not terrible, but mostly it's not as bad. a program level. We're average at best, right? And to come in and boldly say we will be one of the least penalized teams, that's part of our formula. And then to have done it halfway through the season thus far shows you that you can get your message across. And that gives you hope that if they have the right message for the other things they're teaching the players, that will also get across. So that's very significant to the team's success, not only because having a few penalties helps you win, but because it proves that part we just talked about. You're able to get through your players. You can teach concepts that matter. You're able to clearly communicate with them. And that's a two-way street that's working, and there's some evidence of it. All right, Alan, coaching corner. Uh, As always, send us your corners each week. If you see something that you find interesting in NFL or college football, we'll start with Adam who asks, Miami kicked an onside kick versus UNC on Saturday using the two-kicker approach to trick UNC. This is a popular way to kick an onside kick. They almost got it. Of course, this has been done for years, but does a two kicker approach actually result in a higher EV? I don't know. I don't know what the math is on it. I mean, I, I get it because you can't load up one side anymore. You have to split your team. That's in the rule book. So having two kickers doesn't really reduce your odds of covering it. I don't think too much because you can't just stack. It's not like one less guy that you could put over on that side. I think, um, so I don't know. I don't I don't know if anybody's done the math on this. I don't know if anyone's done the math either. Unfortunately, Adam, I ran out of time to do like a deep dive search on this. I also don't know if anyone's done it that granularly because obviously getting an onside kick now is, is so hard to get. The likelihood of getting it is so low that if you saw like the two kicker approach work even a couple of times in a season, I think you'd see a lot of people doing it. My guess would be that the results are probably the same. But I think if you practice something, no matter what your onside kick is, if you practice something that's a little bit different than what your opponents are practicing, that tends to be, that has to result in some small EV boost just because, again, you're taking a chance that they haven't seen exactly what you're doing and that will work the first time you use it and then every other school will look at what you're doing and be ready for you. Now, this flows perfectly, Alan, into what Oklahoma State did. This has made really big news here in the past day or two. Somehow, the college football rulebook did not did not delineate or differentiate between a fair catch 
as to whether it was on an onside kick or a kickoff. And in fact, it goes as far as to say that if the ball bounces, it's bouncing in your direction first, you can still call a fair catch. Well, Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy's very intelligent troops received an onside kick late in the game against Texas Tech, to which their player, you can watch it on film, immediately calls for a fair catch as soon as the ball hits the ground as it's bouncing in his direction. Texas Tech recovers the onside kick, but it didn't matter because he had called for a fair catch. And if you call for a fair catch, you cannot interfere with this catch window, which Texas Tech did by catching the onside kick. And therefore, it was Oklahoma State's ball. Of course, there's a lot of fear amongst coaches and college well, football pundits neutralizes that the onside kick. kick is now done. You cannot use it this season until they correct the rule. So the big question for you, Alan, is if you are the NCAA, do you release a rule change right now this week? that says new rule amended, you know, blah, blah. And you take out the language of, you know, an onside kick or whatever. You make it right so that the bouncing ball has to go past whatever. Yeah. Some scenario you create, but do you do that right now? Or do you let this entire season go knowing that now every single team is going to call for a fair catch immediately, which I think is really going to loophole the game to a level that would not be desirable. If they have that capability, you know, they might just be bureaucratically unable to do that. But if they have the ability, they should certainly do that. If it's truly neutered that way, and it seems like unless they just misapplied the rule in the Oklahoma State game, it feels like they they almost would have to if they are able to. But right. I don't expect them to. No, it doesn't seem like a big bureaucratic organization would, which means this should end onside kicks in college football for the rest of this season. I and, guess you and, still do it just to make sure the other team knows that they're And you could have five players doing it. That's the other thing, too. Like, everyone could do it. So as soon as the ball bounces in the direction of the five of us trying to get it, we can all call for a fair catch. There's no rule against that. It doesn't matter. It's not going to hurt us. It basically, it basically wow. prevents you from recovering it. So that is very interesting. Also really interesting that nobody noticed that in the rule book. So I'd love to know what GA, there had to be a special teams that GA guy needs a raise. who read the rule book and was waiting for his moment. And it was his moment that could have, that led to securing a win when Texas Tech actually recovered that ball. Wow. So anyway, that's, that's brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. I'm sure we're going to hear more on this story as time goes on, but pay attention to that for now. And lastly, it would not be a coaching corner if we did not feature Florida State. <laughs> Florida State played NC State very well. They were up 17-3 yeah. to three in that game. They collapsed towards the end, but they had put themselves in field goal range on the 20-ish yard line of NC State with 30-some-odd seconds left. It's second down and 10. Second and 10, 20-ish yard line, 30-ish seconds left on the road at NC State. And if you correctly selected that Florida State dropped back on second and 10, there was no pressure on the quarterback, and he just lobbed a lollipop into a cover three defense that was waiting for the ball where the receiver was not even within 10 yards of it, then you have the correct item on your bingo card because that is exactly what happened. Norvell sort of collapses on the ground, just doesn't even know what to think or say. I mean, how how horrific was this, Alan? Yeah, it it's so bad that you wonder if they, like, ran the wrong play or something. I mean, it, it was certainly just, it was terrible all the way around. If it was that, if that was the call, that was awful. It was an awful throw. It was an awful decision. Could not have been worse from every angle. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, and I'm not, I don't hate being aggressive to go for the win here, but because they don't trust their kicker for sure. But 
that play call into that scenario was about as bad as you can get if that's actually what happened. And this is, I have to imagine, this is not a bad decision by Mike Norvell, in my opinion. You are trying to score to win the game here. But certainly your quarterback has got to know, and the quarterback's an extension of your coach and your offensive coordinator and your play caller. So your quarterback has to be thinking what you would be thinking if you're on the field, which in that case is manage the game correctly. If you're going to run a slot fade and your guy is open, you throw it. And if not, you're also a running quarterback. You take off and you run it or you hit a check down or whatever. But under no duress whatsoever to just throw a ball that was never there on a pre-snap read, on a post-snap read at any point in time to lose a football game is an egregious mistake by a quarterback. And again, I don't think Norvell should have just been taking a knee there. They don't trust their kicker. I wouldn't trust college kickers in general. I would have been trying to score, but that cannot be the message you're giving your quarterback when you're only down two. So huge miscommunication there. And Florida State, who survived one against LSU, does not survive one against NC State. They were 4-0. They are now 4-2, and perhaps feeling differently about yeah, we'll their get to them future season. And the recaps there in a second. I want to read off some patrons. And for those of you, begin some emails and messages. We are reading off every single patron that's ever contributed to us in the history of the show, as we do every single year. If we haven't gotten to you yet, it's just because chronologically we're not to you yet. But don't you worry. We will get, we'll to get you. there. We will get to all of you as we appreciate yes, and so, unless something is wrong. If yes. we get to the end and we haven't and mentioned we haven't you, gotten you know. please message us because we try to make sure every single one of you is in here as we love our patrons. All right. Alex Brow, Peter Galarte, Wade Bayless. What's up, man? Congrats on the baby a few weeks ago. Taylor LaCroix, Tim Tebow. Uh, go, Tim, Tim, man, good to have you as a supporter. So great. John Curto, Christina Frost, Aiden Augustine, friend of the esteemed Alexander Leventhal. Yeah, there's a lot of Feather right there. Aiden, yeah. Feather uh, Company, and then obviously Alexander as well, and then friend of the esteemed. Yeah. yeah. Michael Varley, Derek Barfield, our old friend Travis White. Travis. Mark Mitchell, Donnie Mathis, Ryan McCann, Danny Kent, Chris, Chris Glazier, Bruce, Ma- Bruce Smathers, Willie Taggart. One of my favorites. Yeah, Willie good Taggart. job, Willie. It was a good day when you came on board. <laughs> Dylan Fay, Stephen Cruz, Alex Chavers, Jim M. Matulis, Matthew Bailey, Mark Amberman, Scott Evely, James Newton, Josh Wu. Uh, Josh Wu, also known go. as Fast Wu, back in the day, playing flag football. Adam Walters, Donald Hershey, James Barfield, Randall Lockhart, Terry T., Colin Crable, Charlie Murphy. Love Charlie Murphy. He's uh, my Little League Baseball, one of my good friends from Little League Baseball's dad. Uh, which is pretty awesome. And also all around good guy in Sarasota. Marshall and Kathy Gallup, Daniel Preston, John Hotman, Doug DiVirgilio, my actual dad. There Good we go dad. Uh, Jeff Wilson, Cody Summerlin, Mark Holcomb, Nathan Jeter, Michael Rosado. Great soccer player there, Mike. What's up? Brian Burke, David Lee, not the D Lee that played basketball, but the dealer that played baseball for Florida, D. Lee. Friend of the pod. Uh-huh. R.C., Ozzy Mutz. Of the illustrious Mutz family. The Mutz family and clan. The good gator of the Swamp Message Board. And then Amy Campbell, who uh, went on to become a CNNSI host and a bunch of other great it's things. Been on the pod several times. Yeah, been on the pod. Yep, absolutely. All right, Alan, let's go through the games that we picked. It was uh, it was it was tough sledding for us this week. For sure. I went 5-8, and eight, you went 4-9. and <sighs> Man. We've had better fail. showings there. Okay, the aforementioned Florida State Seminoles go down 17-19 to the Wolfpack. Florida State was winning 17-3 at halftime. NC State completed one pass after halftime. One pass. And that was a wide receiver to a quarterback. (laughs) Their star quarterback actually gets hurt in this game, goes out. 
They basically just run the ball to win. If issue doesn't score again, just a total collapse by them. Total collapse. Florida State, though, is is much better. This They're better. Season, despite they're still Florida State of new, where they make all sorts of crazy mistakes and things. But uh, NC State's a nice football team. Uh, but this is sort of classic, I feel like, ACC football right now. It's <laughs> not pretty. It's a, it's sort of a cluster F. It's wild. Uh, it, it, but it finishes, it finishes wildly correct. All right. Tennessee just goes to Death Valley and lays the absolute smackdown on the Tigers 40 to 13. I mean... It wasn't even this close. They were just scoring at will. LSU gave them the ball right before halftime. They're like, oh, we're going to go right down the field and kick a field goal with like 10 seconds left. That's all that we need. It's crazy. I, mean, I don't know how much I have to say how much I love Tennessee before all of you get sick of it, but I love <laughs> I love the offense. I just love it. I've said it a million times over. It's my favorite. It's selfishly and biasly what I would be running to a large degree if I was coaching in college football. And it is working very well right now. It especially works against teams like LSU who did not put a lot of good stuff on the film without a stop Tennessee in general. Um, and they just dropped the opening kickoff and got buzz sawed from there. Despite the fact, Allen, that hooker continues to be his own worst enemy. I mean, right. a lot of just wide open missed throws. And that's the scary part. If you think this is like a flash in the pan for Tennessee's offense, you are sorely mistaken. This is the beginning of what's going to be perennially an amazing passing offense, and it's only going to get much, much better from here as they get better quarterbacks and better receivers into that program. This is the very beginning of what you're going to see out of this offensive unit. Dislike. Okay. Auburn doesn't get absolutely blown out. That's probably sad to I say mean, for them. It seems like they did. You know. <laughs> I don't know. They they kept it a little close for a while. Georgia wins forty two to ten. They do cover. Yeah, and you and I both had Auburn here, not because we believed in them. We just thought twenty nine and a half, Georgia's not looking so great, but boy, Auburn. It seems wild that they would just keep Harson any longer because I mean he's he's a dead man walking, but he's still still there. All right. Mississippi State just puts it on Arkansas forty to seventeen. I really like this Bulldogs team. They might be the second best team in the West. Yeah, what is wrong with me? I love Mike Leach. I love the air raid. And I said this when I picked Arkansas. What yeah. the heck am I doing? I'm I'm letting down my guy. That's ridiculous. I deserve to take that L. This team is getting better every single week. Yeah. And they're running the football better than Mike Leach ever has. And there's a lot of... I have not watched enough film on them yet. I've watched them only live. But it certainly seems like... This is Mike Leach 2.0. We hinted at that. It certainly seems like that. He has run the ball before. It's not like he doesn't run the ball ever. But he is running the ball more and with more effectiveness than he ever has. And if you can run the football, coupled with the air raid, that is a deadly combination. And that's what's going on. And their defense is playing fairly well, too. Their defense is solid. No, he's had a good defense since he's been there. Defense is playing solid. But it's just, it forces teams into such uncomfortable positions when you feel like you're going to get scored on every time. And that's what's happening not only at Tennessee, but also at Mississippi State. So they are quietly putting together a very nice season. All right, Texas Tech, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State wins 41-31. to 31. That's a good win by them. I mean, this is what they do. Texas Tech's a, a cagey yeah. team. They're, like they're, yeah, they're frisky for sure. But a good win and a push as far as our bets go. <laughs> yeah. Ohio State just lays it on Michigan State 49-20. to 20. I mean, we, we've talked for a couple weeks now. we got Michigan State is just 
they took a giant step back and they got to be pretty discouraged. Yeah, giant step back. I really wonder what the administration's thinking about that contract now. Yep. Okay. I'll say this is maybe the most impressive win for me. I was not buying a lot of UCLA stock, but they beat Utah 42-32, and I felt like they just controlled them the entire game. They were the better team by far. They were the better team. Uh, Utah had opportunities, but Utah missing, of course, their best tight end and their best player outside of Cam Rising affected them. They're, as we mentioned, they're, they're not a team that has right. a lot of top-end talent. So to lose, Especially a receiver. Correct. So to lose a guy like that really affects them. But that was not the story of this game. UCLA's offense was the story of this game. Chip Kelly now in year five, Allen, safe to say the best hire of the class that he was with. with I guess. And others. I mean, Remains to be seen, perhaps, but he's still there. But I also think Chip Kelly has this team rolling with a very Frankenstein set of parts. They're still not recruiting well at UCLA. He's pieced together guys from the transfer portal. Um, This is a testament, I think, to his offensive acumen and obviously having enough athletes that when his system works, it really, really works. So I I think it's interesting. UCLA could afford to be patient with him well and they kind of had to be they were right. so woeful talent wise it was not an immediate rebuild scenario but he would have been fired in the well, sec right because of well, the way he was recruiting correct and he, exactly he wouldn't have survived because the competition was a two grade and b he would have recruited even worse than the sec because no effort in the sec gets you no players right. whereas out west you still get something all right this is another i think really impressive win for usc they win 30 to 14 i thought washington state was going to cover this game they'd not they didn't know. Look, Lincoln Riley undefeated. Again, a guy who's an exemplary football coach. You're going to see that in contrast with obviously Oklahoma and what's going on there. Uh, he is one of the best for a reason. Super consistent. And USC immediately goes from a mixed bag of messiness over the past several years to an undefeated top 10 team. Are they actually that good? I don't think so. If you put USC in the SEC West, they're in the middle. Uh, yeah, probably. At best, maybe. But, but. To, to Lincoln Riley's credit, he's not in the SEC West. That's why he left. He didn't want to be in the SEC. And he's beating teams in front of him. Uh, but they're playing good football. All right. North Carolina was getting points in this game, and I loved it. Yeah. And they win 27-24 against I mean, Miami. Great, right? Miami, how do you feel now? A lot of trash talk in the offseason. A lot. A lot of running their mouth about how great they were going to be. But as we've we've said many times, crystal ball, a lot of hype, good recruiter. And they can recruit their way to being really good in the ACC. We'll, we'll see if they yeah, can. Yeah, they'll keep there. recruiting. But on-field coaching from him leaves a lot to be desired. All right. A team that I kind of just written off for this year, but they've been improving every week. Notre Dame beats BYU in Las Vegas 28-20. to BYU, just when I think I can trust you. Yeah. I can't do it. And look, Marcus Freeman, 0-2. Now he's not, right? Ripped off four wins in a row here. That's a good job by him. Absolutely a good job by him. So I think if you're a Notre Dame booster or fan, you're breathing a significant sigh of relief. Yeah, you were hoping he wasn't a giant bust. Yes, a lot of season in front of you, but at the very least now, you know he's not a giant bust, at least not yet. Right, it doesn't mean he's going to get there. No, but a really nice turnaround when things could have gotten dire fast. Right, you were looking at a a one to two win season there if they didn't get any better, and they clearly have. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just an absolute rock fight here. Kansas State at Iowa State. They win 10-9. to nine. Kansas State was only favored by two, and they don't cover here. That's funny. 
They don't, but they win 10 to 9. I mean, yep. Iowa State, Iowa, Kansas State's been scoring a lot, but <laughs> those games in general are, oh man, 10 9. Either way, I think Kansas State's not going to complain about it as uh, they're in the midst of a good season. <laughs> okay. I just took a giant L on this one. I don't think I had realized how far the floor had fallen out underneath Oklahoma. They lose 49 to 0. This has got to be just unimaginable. They were chirping like crazy in the beginning of the year. Like, see, it doesn't matter where Oklahoma. They are a hot mess right now in every conceivable way. Texas just puts it on them. I mean, do you get shut out in your rival game and get basically 50 points put up in you? Man, that's a that's tough. That's a bad look. That's a really bad look, and I love it because for the first time in I don't even know how many years, Oklahoma fans can feel like everyone else feels. At every other program, when you're not always good every yeah. single year. And I think they're in shock. I think they're in a state of denial yeah. and a state of shock. And Texas, I'm going to say this, Quinn Ewers is the absolute truth. That dude Legit. is disgusting. He is a cold killer at quarterback. And if that guy stays healthy, Texas is going to do things. They're going to be competitive. They're going to compete for a national title. I don't care if their defense is even just average. He has got an incredible natural feel for playing quarterback. That is a marriage made in heaven for them. Uh, I don't know what you do if you're if you're Arch Manning. I mean, Quinn's a freshman. It's like well, he's a redshirt freshman. Well, okay, you're gonna leave after next year. I don't know. Either way, point you, is, you'd sit one year. Point behind is, him. a lot of people are low on Arch Manning. We'll see what he can do. But I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm sky high on Quinn Ewers. I think they would have beaten Bama had he not gotten injured. Yeah, and I mean. Oklahoma's not good, but he looks the part back there. For so sure. keep an eye on Texas for the rest yeah, of the year. Yeah, and I think with Oklahoma, I just really I just went total gut because of the wonkiness of this game that Oklahoma usually plays better Normally. than Texas game. Yeah. But there's so much worse it didn't matter. No. Okay. No, and, and also should be noted. Yeah. So Venables is without a doubt revered as an excellent defensive coordinator. Oklahoma's defense is horrific still. Horrific. So if you're looking at Florida and you're thinking Tony's trash, fire Patrick Tony, keep in mind that a guy that universally is known as an excellent defensive coordinator is not getting any results yet out of Oklahoma. You well, just, also, some things you just can't fix immediately. He also hired Ted Roof as his DC, and I think that was a terrible choice that's coming back to haunt him too. So. Well, also, yes, questions abound about why you just don't, anyway, be your own anyway. DC or do what Kirby did and hire guys in your own image. Anyway, yeah. There you go. All right. In a fantastic game. TCU holds on to beat Kansas 38-31. Kansas loses their star quarterback. The backup, I, I think his name is Jason Bean or something like that. He's just throwing bullets everywhere. Balling. And Kansas is good. Like, you know, the storyline will fade a little bit because they're not undefeated anymore, but, like, they're legit good. That's a good football team. That's a good win. TCU is also obviously legitimately good for the competition they're playing against. But to have a backup come in when you felt like Kansas's team was largely centered around their star quarterback and do that shows you that this is a well-coached football team. So the question now is, does Leopold stay there? I mean, he's got to be. We'll see. Topping everyone's list at this. Yeah, stage. he's gonna go where he wants to go. I, I mean, think. this is crazy with what he's doing at Kansas. All right, I didn't expect this to be a game. We both took Alabama in the 24 points here, but Texas A&M almost wins again. And I, I don't know if this is just Jimbo has Saban's number, quote-unquote. Like, I was so, I was shocked at this. I mean, Alabama did turn the ball over a bunch, miss a bunch of field goals. They're playing with their backup quarterback. But this, for the second year in a row, it seems like a outlier result for A&M. They almost 
have beaten Alabama twice in a row. And again, they're technically playing a backup quarterback. The guy who got benched comes back and looks good. I wonder if he turns back into a pumpkin next week. Who knows? But um, yeah, Alabama is happy to get out of there with a win. Yeah, this would have been different for me feeling-wise. I thought Bryce Young was going to play. I thought his shoulder injury was going to be one that was able to play. I would not have picked Alabama if I knew that it was not going to be Bryce. I also would not have imagined that Alabama's backup quarterback would be so poor at throwing the football. Such an electric athlete, but I it's hard. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. You don't want to look at too much at one game, but it is hard to imagine that he may ever become a viable passing quarterback, which is unusual because Alabama's been full send in the mold of great passers. How does that happen? Well, they have a couple guys coming in who are more traditional quarterbacks. And that's what I was about to say. So I think, if anything, you might see a position change. Absolutely. Correct. I agree. And so I think that's why Nick Saban was so happy. I think he knew he was flying thin this season, if you will, at quarterback. And that just to survive a win with him and get Bryce back next week was the goal. And they did it. And he didn't care how it happened. And uh, they survived it, to say the least. Okay. Matt Rule gets fired by the Carolina Panthers. Uh, I, he's going to be a hot name. Again, some people like to talk about the NFL as like the big leagues in some sense it is, but the skill sets do not overlap completely. I think you can be a really successful college coach and be a bad NFL coach and vice versa. I think he's going to come back and be successful. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see where he lands. If I'm Auburn, I pick up the phone right now. I mean, they probably already did. I mean, he got fired this morning. I think they probably already called him. He's going to be the biggest name available for every reason that you would imagine. And you said it well, and we've talked about this before. They are different oceans entirely. Um, Very few people have skill sets to overlap both of them. And it's not all about football acumen on either side, to be a pro coach or to be a college coach. It's not entirely about football acumen. That's kind of half the battle. But he's going to be the biggest name available. Uh, and, And if you're Auburn, I think you're thinking... This is this is it. Like we have to back the brinks up and make this happen. We'll see if they do it. All right, Daytona Steve drops another parlay. Like loses three or four here. Sorry, Daytona. Yeah, Daytona joked that uh, this week at the meetup that we should do a raffle where if you enter the raffle, you're guaranteed to lose money, and we'll call it the <laughs> Daytona Steve raffle, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant and very funny. All right, SEC roundup. Old Miss takes care of Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt was winning at halftime, though. Clark Lee's got the boys a little feisty. They are a friskier version, for sure, than they were last year. They are. They're a team you can't just think is an automatic win. They will push you. South Carolina takes care of Kentucky, an ugly game. Kentucky's offense even worse because Levis was not there due to his injury. Does this surprise you in any way, shape, or form? No. I mean, they were they were lucky to score points with him. So, I mean, 24-14 feels about appropriate. And if they had won, I wouldn't have been shocked. But South Carolina, they're not a doormat. They will play you. Yeah, this was the team we thought Kentucky was. And we said, again, on film, this was not a good team. And they was going to catch up with them. And it did. Obviously, no Levis hurts them, you know, significantly. Yeah, the game is are. obviously closer if, if he's in the game. For sure. He's going to be a significant difference for them. They could have even won this game. Uh, I thought the best moment of this game was Shane Beamer afterwards. Yeah is in the locker room and he gives a little speech about how Mark Stoops made a comment during SEC media days about him dancing and wearing sunglasses and right on cue, he pulls out sunglasses, turns his hat backwards. They go through this epic locker room dance with his players. And you're like, you know, 
Shane Beamer is good for college football. Like that, it's just there's an element there where for you're sure. like, you know what, these guys are having a great time there in South Carolina. I think you're if it's you're South time. Carolina, have some fun. Yeah, it's smart though. It's a good look. Like I yeah. think that's that's smart, but I also think he's genuine about it. I right. think he he loves coaching South Carolina, and I think there's something to that. Okay, James, are you ready to talk about the Bayou Bengals, the LSU Tigers? I'm ready. The Tigers, go Tigers! All right, this is a night game at the Swamp. LSU is four and two, so is Florida. Florida's favored by two and a half. We mentioned at the top. This has just been. A wild series, right? So LSU's coming off a loss to Tennessee 40-13. I don't know that matters at all with the outcome we're going to get. In the last couple of years, it's been crazy. So last year, the LSU wins 49-42. Anthony Richardson comes off the bench and almost wills Florida back, comes up a little short. The shoe game in 2020, the Joe Burrow-Trask duel in 2019, UF wins in 2018. 2719, where they get Burrow to throw a pick at the end. Uh, these two programs are now linked because of the coaching decisions at, at LSU. Um, they fire Orgeron. They have Billy Napier in their backyard. They say, we're not interested. They go after Brian Kelly. They're leaving Florida open to hire Napier. So I think these two tenures are going to be tracked together moving forward. Now, Florida and LSU are obviously always linked because they're the common West opponent, but I think this takes it up another notch here. The aforementioned Brian Kelly, you guys know who he is, former Notre Dame coach. He's obviously in his first year there. Um, LSU is a talented team. They are eighth in the talent composite. They're five, five stars, 33, four stars. Yeah. They still got dudes out there. Um, their, their staff obviously are new there. Mike Denbrock, lots of years with Kelly comes from Cincinnati as, as an OC Matt house, been a lot of places. Chiefs linebacker coach, been at Kentucky, Pitt, FIU. Uh, yeah, interesting personnel and offense. Jaden Daniels, the Arizona State transfer. He's their leading rusher. He's got two times the attempts of the next player. That's really interesting. Isn't they don't have the stud running back that you're used to ha- LSU having. Um Wide receiver, they got some guys, Malik Neighbors, number eight, Keishon Butte, number seven, who's been electric every time he's been healthy. Mason Taylor, tight end. They spread the ball around a decent amount. Man, this is an LSU team that's like all over the place. Similar to Florida, a lot of variants. They can look pretty good. They have a win over what I said was probably the second best team in the West, Mississippi State. They've also looked just kind of bad at times, too, and just discombobulated. All right, when you're looking at them on offense, what are you picking up? Well, first of all, and you said it, Keishon Booty is an is an NFL player. Right. Hands down. And I think wisely the smart teams that have gone against LSU have just doubled him on basically every play. They're unwilling to let him catch the ball in space or take anybody one-on-one. It's just not worth it. Despite the fact that LSU has other capable offensive players, without a doubt, but he is so good. You really cannot let him, I think, beat you. So I'd, I'd expect Florida to pay attention to that. And then Jaden Daniels is a really good runner, and and they're leaning heavily into that. I mean, he's averaging more than 10 carries a game, Allen. So, I mean, he's really dangerous scrambling when you drop back to pass and you don't account for him. Correct. And so I think those are the two things I think about when I think about LSU on film. 
As far as the scouting goes, there's they're basically balanced running passing, 47% running, 53% passing. Stats-wise, they're middling at running the football. They're middling at passing. They do have a high completion rate, but a very low yards per completion. So they're not averaging a lot per pass. They throw almost no INTs. They give up a ton of sacks. So again, that's very weird if you hear what I just said there, right? High completion percentage. Almost no interceptions. Very high sack rate. Very bizarre stuff. Uh, They're not nearly as good versus man as they are versus zone. They're 27 of 57 versus man. No touchdowns, no picks, seven sacks, just 4.8 yards per attempt. Against zone, 63% versus zone, 7.9 yards per attempt. So a signif- that's a significant difference. Typically, Allen versus man defense, you expect to see teams have a higher yards per attempt. So when you see something like that, as a defensive coordinator, I'm thinking, man, is something that I want to be doing. That's too big of a difference. They also struggle just a bit more versus pressure compared to not bringing pressure. A remarkable 62% of their passes are five yards or shorter into the backfield. And an also remarkable 8%. That's why they have no interceptions. Yes. Another remarkable 8% are longer than 20 yards. Just 12 attempts on the entire season versus Power 5 competition have gone more than 20 yards. So that tells you what kind of offense they are running. However, should be noted, on film, they are a competent offense. They run good routes. They spread you out. They're variable. They're not predictable. And they do feature their tight end, who's got a bunch of targets and a bunch of receptions. And that's something we know Florida struggles with. So I think what the film tells me is this team can pose a problem for Florida. We've seen rushing quarterbacks pose problems for Florida. We've seen tight ends pose problems for Florida. And in general, this team does run competent stuff, you know, route wise. They don't always hit it, but it's competent and it's there. So this will be, if you weren't thinking it will be based upon LSU's offensive output, this will be obviously a challenge for Florida's defense, which can allow any team to be challenging. But this one in particular, I think could pose a problem for Florida given where their matchups lie. It's interesting. Uh, when you think about LSU and you watch them play, I mean, Jaden Daniels, when he's scrambling, he's, He's an elusive runner. He's really effective. Throws a nice ball. That, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. They're effective, but they don't scare me either. As you said, they don't hit big plays for the most part. They're not great at running the ball just straight up. They can be had for sure. Uh, but how do they move the chains? Like I, I, I watch them. And like man, they just keep picking up first downs here. And like you said, they're very good at completing the short passes. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Florida handles this, whether they are able to contain Jane Daniels, Florida's defensive ends have not always kept the edge, have overrushed the passing lanes. Is there a guy that they could even put to spy on him that could account for his athletic ability? I don't know. Uh, I think if Florida's disciplined, they can do well here, but it's not a given for sure. And, Butte will hurt you, but I think we have the guys to put on him. And this staff has shown that they're not, don't make the same mistakes as the old staff where they're just going to let whoever run wild on you. Uh, It's not, I don't know. It's not obvious to me how this is going to go or what I even really expect from LSU in this game. No, true wild card. Both these teams are wild cards, right? On offense and defense. So is LSU. So they're mirrored. They're looking in the mirror at each other. I think that's part of the two and a half point spread is like you're playing yourself. 
just a different version. I think what Florida should do in this game is play a lot of man for the reasons I mentioned, but you have to keep a spy. You don't want to play man defense against a running quarterback without anyone looking at him. It gives up significant yards. We talked about that with Utah versus Florida, that they paid a heavy price for that. I don't think Florida wants to be getting in the habit of that. So rather than employing your extra defender as a rat or a robber, just use him as a spy. The natural player for that role is Bernie. That's like what he's suited for in all reality is let him be an athlete and chase someone around. Don't make him do the things he's not quite as good at. I think Florida does have the personnel to do this. Something we have to see the defensive line get better in, and I saved it for this portion, didn't mention it during last portion, is as a unit, they've really struggled when it's just them rushing four and Florida's going to drop seven, let's say, and there's no one accounting for the quarterback. They've struggled at not as not working as a unit to allow, or I guess allow themselves the space to stop the quarterback if he escapes the pocket. And we've seen them each individually going so hard for a sack. You're not working together. In the NFL, you'll see a much more concerted effort where each player rushes, basically remaining in their gap while rushing. And the defensive tackles, when they get two, three yards off the field, will be looking at the quarterback, making sure, hey, is he escaping? Is he staying? Is he throwing? Put my hands up. Is he escaping? I'm going to push off my lineman so I create backward space to then tackle him before he escapes up the middle. Florida's been getting gashed with these middle escapes, largely because their defensive tackles are often trying to do too much or our defensive ends do too much. You'll see Florida guys doing spin moves two seconds into their rushing, right? This is, this is an important game if you wanted to enact my game plan to not do that. I'd be heavily telling my unit, yes, we have a spy on him, but it doesn't matter. You cannot lose your gap. I need a readable back gap for Bernie. I need to collapse pressure on him as a unit. Keep him in the middle. Keep him in the pocket. He's not as comfortable there. And one comfortable thing, Alan, is at most on film, at most, Jaden Daniels will make two reads. But very frequently, he will just look at the receiver he's going to throw the football to. He will tell you where he's going with it. It's one of his problems. He doesn't throw picks because he often will not pull the trigger. He'll just run. But that feeds into what I'm talking about defensively. If I can get my defensive line and my spy on the same page and I can tell my corners, look, you guys are plenty good enough to cover for the first a second and a half. And if you do it, he's going to want to pull it down. That's a win for us. So I like that game plan. I think I know for sure that that's not what Tony's going to do. Right. So this, if so I discuss what I like to do because that's what we get to do with our own podcast. I think Tony's going to do what we've seen him do. He's going to start with two high. That does not mean cover two, but it means he's going to start with two safeties up top playing safe. He's going to play it like he's a premier defense like what you'd see in the NFL. Every NFL team comes out every week and they start off in their base defense with too high and say, can you run on me or pass on me if I'm playing safe in the back end? And underneath will do all kinds of stuff. They'll play man, they'll blitz, they'll do whatever, but they're going to keep two guys up top. Tony's wanted to do that pretty consistently until you prove to pull him out of it. So I expect Florida to do that. I expect Florida to then mix in what they're doing with man and their basic coverages. The major thing is here, no matter what Tony does, and there's multiple ways to stop LSU, he should feature a significant amount of man because the stats are just literally crying for it here. This is too significant of a difference, Alan, for him not to play more man than we played last week against Missouri than we played before. If Tony is the kind of guy I think he is, I should come on next week and say we played more than just a handful of snaps of man, leaning into the fact that they struggle most against that. That'll be really interesting to see what we do there. Okay, you ready? Let's talk about their defensive personnel. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean... As usual, a lot of dudes to mention here. 
Safety, Greg Brooks. At corner, Jay Ward. Both excellent coverage guys. Defensive end, number 18, which is a significant number for LSU in their program. They give that out to one of their leaders. B.J. Ojolari leads the team in sacks. Has only played in three games. Yeah, pretty remarkable. He's yeah. got four and a half sacks in three games. Yep. Uh, a great LSU name here. And defensive tackle number 99, Jacqueline Roy or Jacqueline Wah. I don't know how he would. I don't know, but I, I hope it's Wah. I really hope it's Wah. That would be the French way to say it. Yes, for uh, sure. Linebacker Micah Baskerville leads the team in tackles. So they're missing a couple of their studs through injury, but still a lot of dudes out here that you have to account for. Um, yeah, I again, when you watch the LSU defense, it's kind of the same thing as the offense, right? So sometimes they look like, man, they're going to clamp down on you. Other times they look a little lost. That's that's a simple way to say it, is sometimes they do look like they're going to clamp down on you, and they do, and sometimes they're not there. Outside of, of really the Tennessee game, LSU's made great second-half adjustments. LSU's sort of fallen behind frequently in some of these games, and then they find their way through it, and they win in the second half. Not every game, but that's kind of been a little a small storyline recently. Again, with Tennessee, it started to look like that. It was 20-7. to They had the ball. They're driving. They should have kicked a field goal. Talk about a coaching corner. They didn't. They went for it. They Fourth don't get and 10, it. Yeah. Tennessee instead pushes it down their throat, gets more points. That sort of ended the game. Uh, but at any rate, if Florida gets up on this LSU team, do not expect them to fold. They tend to adjust well and make a comeback, largely because their defense gets better as the game goes on. But not surprising, like like any quintessential LSU team, they play 41% of their defense in man. That number's a little bit elevated because they played against Tennessee. If you play against Tennessee, you're going to play more man than you typically do, but it doesn't matter. They play a lot of man defense. Um, they play mostly cover three after that. They do not pressure a lot. That's that's different, right? The Dave the Dave Aranda days, there was a lot of pressure coming from that 3-4 defense. Not so much this year, just 16% pressure rate. They generally only bring one extra rusher if they do it. So a little bit more conservative there. They trust their pass defense. They trust their front four. They're above average versus the run. They're middling versus the pass. Uh, not great getting INTs, but they do offer a top 30 sack rate. So that tells you without pressure, they're generating a lot of hurries, largely because of the guys we mentioned. Uh, so they have some guys in the front four who can pose some problems. It'll be a good challenge for Florida's offensive line, who's been nothing but an absolute wall against teams rushing just four pretty much all year long. Uh, that's a good matchup. So what should Florida do in this game, Alan? In general, this is going to be interesting. LSU is going to obviously come in with a very aggressive plan to stop the run like everyone else has. But unlike the Missouri game, Florida is not going to get away with passing the ball for 66 yards and expecting to win in this game. That's not going to be the case here. We have to do better than that. Therefore, let's lean on what we talked about and the changes we'd like to see. Florida better come to this game with some really well-designed man-to-man plays, some man-beaters, some creative things that are going to make throws easy. So Florida's not relying on one guy beating another guy from LSU and hanging the game on that. LSU will make mistakes on defense. Florida has to take advantage of those mistakes. Florida's playing at home. I think those things are important. This is definitely an LSU team that you can game plan for. Tennessee had receivers running wide open against them all day long using cover beaters. The opportunity is there. The fear is that Florida has yet to show they will do that outside of the Tennessee game. 
And even then, although those routes were better, it still wasn't some of the stuff that, of course, a team like Tennessee is going to do to you. So this is the big question for me. Is can Florida be successful enough in the passing game against a team that is a good run-stopping team, but not as good against the pass? So the mirror matchup is sort of set up here, Alan. Anything could happen in this game. Tell us about some of the perhaps satellite, if you will, categories. I don't know what we call these. I just call them the categories. Also essential, but just you know, further categories to know. So special teams, roughly a push. Um, LSU no longer has Cade York, who's haunted Florida a little bit. That kicker. Penalties, only a slight edge for Florida. I expected this to be larger, but not an undisciplined team. Turnover margin, a push. Time possession for LSU, um, which is not surprising getting, given the way they've held the ball and <laughs> the way Florida has had very low number of plays in a lot of games. Man, <laughs> we're about to predict this game, and it feels like how do you factor in the kookiness of this game is going to be interesting. Because it's not Florida, Missouri. This is Florida, LSU. All right, let's start with the keys to the game. Why don't you go first there? All right, this this game, much like Missouri, I think is going to hinge on a couple of things. I'm going to start defensively first. And I'm going for the simplest stat that means the most, just like we do each week on this show. And in this case, it's going to be rushing yards, of course, by LSU's quarterback, Jaden Daniels, who we've talked about extensively. If Florida can hold LSU to 40 or fewer quarterback rushing yards, then this is going to be positive for Florida's defense. And again, the goal for the key to the game is like, what key can I select that Florida will win in the overwhelming majority of cases if that stat happens? I think that one's essential. 40 we can deal with. That means he probably converts a couple of third downs here and there, but not enough to where it leads to more than maybe three to six to seven points kind of max. And that's what I think Florida's going to have to do here on defense. And then for offense, uh, you heard me already tee it up. It's going to be a, this is going to be a game where passing matters. We said last week, passing actually didn't matter as much. It was going to be all about running. This game, I think Florida has to have a passing game that's at least there. I don't think it has to be prolific, but I think if Florida wants to win in the overwhelming majority of cases, Florida needs to throw for at least 175 yards, which again is is a rather pedestrian effort here. You can beat LSU without having to throw for 300 yards. This is not Tennessee, but I think you got to see 175 passing yards in this one for Florida to be able to have their best chance of winning. Yeah, similar vibes to you here. I, I thought about this in terms of their third down percentage. Um, so I'd like to see LSU sub 50% on third down. Well, well, that's generous, right? Well, <laughs> Sub 50%. Let, let's, let, well, you're right. I like it. No, that might, that's, that's not bad. That's just, it's, it's where we are. Yes. I mean, you could say 45, 40. Yeah, we could wish for like 30. Yeah. But no, I like it. All right. So sub 50, here we go. If, if they're above, if they're above 50%, then Florida's lost the game is okay. how I was thinking. I like this. it. No, I like it. I like it. It's, uh, it's good. Offensively. I, I feel roughly the same way. I think it's going to have to be closer to 200 yards. Uh, I, I think we're going to miss out on some of the bigger chunk running plays. Just the speed of LSU could limit those a little bit. Um, and so I think we're going to have to throw the ball to be effective. And I thought about putting like a percentage here, like a completion percentage 
But that doesn't really tell the story often for Florida because you're going to need a little bit of the downfield passing to open up more of what you want to do. And the big X factor here is like, you know, what is Anthony Richardson's health? If he's able to, if LSU is playing man and he's able to scramble and beat them a bunch, that's really big for Florida. But I don't, I don't know that I can really trust him to do that. He did that a little bit sparingly against Missouri, only when he really had to. So we'll see how he's feeling in this game. I like it. Like those categories. All right. And with that, Alan, it's time to flow right into your prediction. All right. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to predict a 30 to 27 LSU win. Just feels like the bad mojo continues for Florida, that it's close. They give up a couple back-breaking Jaden Daniel scrambles, and they're just not able to like maintain game control. Wow. I didn't see that coming. We talk about how often we're like lockstep and uh, what's going to happen with our picks, and I did not see that one coming. Well, that, there's a significant amount of wonk, oh, wonk so factor wonk. in this. No, this is an unknowable Like I, I felt not confident, but with that Missouri, I was like, it's going to be somewhat close to this, I feel like. Right now, it could be expanded one way or the other. You could tell me almost any score in this LSU game, and I would believe you. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I I, I agree with that. I like it. All right, so LSU win for you, Allen. Um, JT Raymond, I can already hear his incensed frustration for sure. I'm gonna pick Florida to win this football game, and I'm gonna do something I've never done on this podcast in my life in our eight years of doing it. I'm gonna pick the same exact score I picked last week. All right, I'm gonna pick Florida to win twenty-seven twenty. Why? Because I feel like that's pretty much what's going to happen again. It's going to be a 20-something to 20-something game. Both of these teams are that way. And it's probably going to be maybe one team's out to a lead, one comes back. But I think by the end, this is going to be a one-score-ish game. It would not surprise me if either team were to beat the other one by 10 or more points. True. Uh, it would be more surprising if LSU did that than if we did that to them. I think there is a narrative here where UF could win this game handily, like there was for Missouri if some of the things we talked about happen, but at this point in time, and here's what I want to say. And I think we're total agreement here. Florida has too much variance and not enough consistency to really know what you're going to get from them. And that's why predicting this is so difficult. And some of the Kyle Trask days, we knew what we were going to get from Kyle Trask, this defense, they play this way. We're going to shred them with these matchups. Here's how much we're going to score. And Florida's defense was always a wild card. But the entire team is a wild card now for both of these both teams. sides. Yeah. And so this is going to be zany. I do think based upon what I've seen on film that Florida uh, is the better football team. Vegas does not think so. Vegas thinks LSU is the better football team. which By is a why small amount. Yeah, small amount, right? But that's still there. So again, if you're disrespecting LSU, if you've watched them play and you think they're not very good, by almost every metric, these two teams are basically the same. So we'll see what happens. This should be a very, very interesting one in the swamp. I love that it's a night game. So often Same. LSU gets a night game versus us, and we always get stuck with some noon game or something that's not nearly as exciting, and we finally have this thing. It seems like so many people are coming into town for this one. I expect this to be an incredibly rowdy atmosphere and environment. And this game, Alan, to your point, this game feels significant for Billy Napier. He coached in the state of Louisiana. There were a fair amount of Louisianans that wanted him to be considered for the LSU job. He didn't. He's at Florida. His benchmark coach is going to be Brian Kelly for as long as their tenures exist at each school. And you better believe that they each understand the importance of winning this first one. 
This is a big game for these two coaches, these two programs, both athletic directors. This is the comparison hire. This is the benchmark. This one's going to mean a lot. So hopefully Florida comes out with the win. Agreed. And if I'm correct and LSU wins, I'll have to go online and order some HelloFresh to make myself feel better. Because, James, as you know, with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Convenience is 10 out of 10. Takes away all that time having to brainstorm meals, check what foods you have. Everything's already measured, comes out quick and easy to cook. If you would like 65% off meals from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65 and use that code GNFP65 for 65% plus off. 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65. All right. Ready to talk about week seven slate? I'm ready. Let's get into it. All right. Love these Kansas Jayhawks. They're at Oklahoma. And Oklahoma's favored by seven and a half. Is that like a total betting public number there? What do you think? That's insane. I mean, I'm, I'm Kansas. Give me Kansas. What are we crazy here? Are you kidding me? Oklahoma's gotten just waxed two weeks in a row. Kansas is a competitive football team. They're getting seven and a half points. For sure. Kansas could come out and lay an egg. They're certainly, you know, they're not the most talented deep team. They haven't laid one yet. You're though. right. I'm, I'm, Love this for Kansas. I almost wanted to check it again to make sure I'm looking at the number. Yeah, right. the talent difference between these two teams is significant, but yeah. I don't care. Talent does not always tell the story. And if Dylan Gabriel plays, which I have no idea whether it is, I'm not on the Oklahoma band, like, you know, message boards. And they're a different offensive team, but that's true. Yeah. All right. Iowa State, my clones at number 22, Texas. Texas favored by a, a nice little 16 and a half number. Do you like it? This feels like a lot. I love Quinn Ewers, but again, it's still Steve Sarkeesian. It's right. still Texas. I love their offense. 16 and a half. I got to like it, though, because Iowa State is not scoring a lot of points, and I, I believe mm-hmm. in Quinn. So to me, can Quinn get in the 30s against Iowa State? That's a good defense. They play a lot of zone. If Quinn's who I think he is, Allen, he's going to prove it this week by lighting them up for more than 35. If not then perhaps that sneaky defense of Iowa State, which has given quarterbacks problems in the past, keeps this closer. I was all ready to pick Texas in this game. Uh, just feels like Iowa State can't pace them. I like that it's under 17, so I'll go Texas here. But I'm 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 very ready to be wrong about that. That's a tough line. Yeah. Tough line there. All right. There, all right, this is a fun slate. You're going to hear a lot of teams that we have not talked about ever. I don't know if we've ever picked an Illinois game. Minnesota at number 24, Illinois. Brett Bielema has got them playing Bielema ball. They're favored by six and a half. What do you think? Minnesota's looked good and bad. Yep. Game to game. Illinois has been consistent. At home, a touchdown or more gives you the win. Spread-wise, I'll take Illinois. I'll go Minnesota here. I think kind of the back and forth, they're going to play well against uh, Illinois and Illinois maybe comes back down to the ground a little bit. All right. Vandy a number one, Georgia, Georgia's favored by 38. What do you think about those Commodores? 38. Uh-huh. Wow. 38. <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, that's such a big number. 
And I feel like Vanderbilt's going to die on the hill to try to just keep scoring and not have it be more than 38. I mean, I'm going to take Vanderbilt. That seems insane. For sure. But I'm going to take them. All over Vandy in this one, I think Georgia hasn't been blasting people by this number outside of like Oregon at the beginning of the year. No, Vandy's been a little, I mean, they stayed with Ole Miss. Yeah. Vanderbilt just can't really stop people. No. But either way, 38. Is Georgia really going to want to push the accelerator that's, against that's, Vandy? That, this is kind of, that's my bet is I'm betting like a late, like if anything, a late Vandy keeps staying on the gas pedal to stay within that. All right. I didn't put the, I forgot to put the number down here. Number 25, I believe. Yes. James Madison, Good. who's new to FBS. Juggernaut on advanced stats, by the way. Absolute juggernaut team. Love them. They're undefeated. They're favored by 10 and a half at Georgia Southern, who's coached by Clay Helton. What do you think? Enough said. Coached by Clay Hilton. Can't pick that. Got to take James Madison. I love it, too. I've, I'll go with you there. I, I No real thoughts other than they've had some couple impressive wins already. Another good football team. Again, advanced stats-wise, extremely good football team. I've not had the pleasure of watching them play, though, so I'm flying blind. Yeah, me too. All right, number 15, NC State. At number 18, Syracuse, who is, I believe, undefeated. ACC showdown here. <laughs> I mean, I was like, Syracuse? Yeah, I know they've been playing well. They're undefeated still. Syracuse favored by three and a half. Who are you taking? You can't just walk into the Carrier Dome <laughs> and get an easy win, Alan. I'm going to take Syracuse. All right, I'll join you here again. Um, NC State, I they're good, but they're, if if Devin Leary is not playing this game, I and I have no idea whether it is or not, so that just makes me want to move towards Syracuse. Interesting line here. Number four, Clemson, only favored by three and a half at those Florida State Seminoles. We keep saying that Florida State is a, is a real football team this year. They've made some stupid mistakes, which still leaves them in the Florida State category. And Clemson is just a team that is not, is anything but dominant. Struggle at Boston College. They don't look great. They keep finding ways to win. Three and a half versus Florida State, though? I mean, Wake Forest went into Florida State, played a close game, but was generally, you know, the better football team. Clemson played an overtime game against Wake Forest. Transited property. I'll take Clemson. I'll take Clemson as well. All right, number 16, Mississippi State, favored by seven at, I forgot the number here, somewhere in the top 25, Kentucky. Not for long. Mississippi State, seven points. I mean, it's just... Is this free money? Are yeah. they paying us to make this pick? I'd love this. Line. I don't care if Will Levis is playing or not. I'm, I'm it's taking a State. Great line, please. Yeah, I mean, we you know from listening to the podcast that Mark Stoops likes to play static defenses on the back end. I mean, the Air Raid will shred that if they have any idea what they're facing. Yeah, please, was. Bulldogs love them this year. All right, there's a lot of good games on this slate towards the end here. This is a great. This is the best slate this season when it comes to like. Close games, Vegas number one. Yeah, there's there's several undefeated teams matched up against one another. Yep. Here's the first set of them here. Oklahoma State, number eight, at number 13, TCU, who's favored by three and a half. I cannot believe that TCU is favored in this game. And, of course, I'm not betting against my boy. Yeah, give me, give me TCU. I like the Sunny Dykes team. I like them too, but, man, favored? Wow. Coming out of the gate hot there at TCU. All right. Man, a really, really interesting game. Number seven, USC, at number 20, Utah. Utah's favored by three and a half. It's really hard to win at Utah. Mm-hmm. That's largely what's going on with this. Um, Utah, your playoff team, Allen, along with Baylor, 
Very Des Howard of you there. Desmond Howard of you to make those picks. I'm not, I'm off the Utah train. I was never on it, but I picked them a couple of times, picked them last week to let me down. I just feel like this team is too limited now, missing their best pass catcher in Kuthi. Yeah, USC, man, they impressed me with last week's win. Going to Utah, though, they haven't done anything like this yet. No, they have not. It's true. Uh, I'll stay with Utah here. Although I'm definitely off the bandwagon in terms of (laughs) how good I thought they would be. All right, number 10, Penn State at number five, Michigan. Michigan's favored by six and a half. I'm not really a believer in either of these teams. I don't like I don't like this game in terms of, uh, of trying to choose it. What do you think? I I oh man, I wouldn't pick this game. I have to pick it. I wouldn't pick it. Six and a half, Michigan. I think I think Penn State gets inside of that, so I'll take Penn State. Man, this is this is hard. Um I'll go opposite you here. I'll, I'll go Michigan. I, just because it's under seven, and I think they do win the game. All right, this is a doozy. I love this one. Number three, Alabama, fair by seven and a half. At number six, Tennessee, Knoxville is going to be going nuts. They've lost like a billion in a row to Alabama. I think it's like 15 or 16. They are hungry for this one. I think for our purposes, we're going to probably assume that Bryce Young plays in this game. As we're making our selection, I assume you're on the same page there. Uh, I am definitely f- considering him as the starter in this game for sure. Otherwise, things will be crazy. I think the line's partly reflecting that maybe he doesn't last there, or it is also early in the week. But either way, I'm taking Tennessee. It's not we questioning. You got to ride high when it's time to ride. Wow, high. you got to ride high when it's time to ride high. They might get smacked, but I don't care. I love Knoxville for the reasons we've mentioned before in this podcast. Their fans are eternally hopeful. They're full of belief. I can't even imagine what Knoxville is like this week and what it's going to be like in Neyland Stadium on Saturday. They've been waiting 20-plus years for this moment. This is their moment. I think they get inside this. They are not a better team than Alabama. I think Alabama's defense is going to be the first team that can give Tennessee's offense problems. That's for sure. I've, I covered it when I covered Florida's style against them. I think they can do that. I think Hooker's probably too inaccurate to win this game, but I don't even care. This is all a hard pick right here. And for a Florida fan who literally went to Tennessee as a freshman and hated them so bad, my evolving love for them carries me to a uh, <laughs> to a, to a victory here. This is really interesting. I, I hate the hook there, the point five. Um they're so amped up this game. If you said at the beginning of the year, Tennessee's just going to lose to Alabama and Georgia, yeah, be ten and two. I think that's the most likely outcome. Correct. But For because sure. I'm getting seven and a half points here, I'm going to go with Tennessee. Um, I don't really expect them to win this game, but I, this could be. I could see it being a three point game for sure. Now. If Alabama wins by 17, I also would not be surprised if they're able to shut down Hinda Hooker, have him make some mistakes, pressure him. This could get, you know, a little ugly for Tennessee, but man, they're hyped and ready for it, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm I mean, I'm so excited. This about is 3:30, yeah, right? I believe it's 3:30, so I'm so excited about watching that game before LSU and Florida. All right, Daytona Steve, it's happened. Allen, for the first time ever, we chronicle this every single week. Daytona Steve has aligned his picks with me, not with you, <laughs> but with me. Okay, it's good happened. Job. He's got Tennessee at seven and a half versus Bama versus Bama. So do I. Clemson versus FSU at three and a half. Boom. I do too. Daytona, Mississippi State minus seven 
at Kentucky. Got that one. And then Florida, two and a half versus LSU. Gotcha. We're locked in here. We're going to see if that pays off or if I just go down with the Daytona Steve ship as well. He's calling it the party parlay. And I'm expecting Daytona Steve to be partying on Saturday night with our win off that parlay. Alan, any other items here before we close out this edition of the pod? No, this is a great state slate. Hopefully it's going to be a really incredible vibe in the swamp. Uh, don't don't <laughs> don't let my pick be a downer. I mean, Florida has every chance to win this game. It's going to be really fun. Um, and yeah, hopefully you get to see a ton of you guys on Friday night. Yeah, please come on Friday night and troll Allen relentlessly yeah, during our GNF. Oh man, what a mistake that he picked LSU. I mean, please make that happen. It's not too late to RSVP. In fact, you can RSVP all the way up until the event on Friday before we close down that RSVP window. I hope to see as many of you there as possible. And until then, or for those of you that are not going to be in town, until next time, on behalf of Alan, I'm your co-host, James DiVirgilio, and this was the Gator Nation Fall Podcast, and I really hope I open up the show next week. Loading over Alan. Since Please, me too. Over. Until then, enjoy the week. Enjoy the weekend. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.